Uh, this is a quote from Dr. Frances Cress Welsing. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her uh, or not. She is a non-white female uh, clinical psychologist, child psychologist, third-generation physician. Uh, on the very first page of her book uh, titled The ISIS Papers. Yeah, I, uh, I know that book, sure. Oh, okay. Uh, on the first page of the book, uh, she says, no persons who classify themselves as white living in the area of the world referred to as the United States of America, or for that matter, in any other area of the world, should presume to tell any black person or other non-white person what racism is or is not until they have read completely Kenneth O'Reilly's Racial Matters. No black person living in the area of the world referred to as the United States of America should discourse on racism or deny the conspiratorial dimensions of the local and global system of racism until he or she has read Racial Matters completely. All non-white people should read and discuss the implications of the book Racial Matters, the implications for themselves and as individuals, and the implications for their collective should be discussed in depth. Uh, how do you feel about someone having that to say on page one of their book about your work, Racial Matters? Yeah, well, that makes me feel good, and I've got, you know, I've, I've, I've got, for Racial Matters, I've got several reactions like that. Uh, I mean, from, ranging from Al Sharpton, who said it was his favorite book. Oh, actually, he said one of my other books was his favorite, Nixon's Piano. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when uh, Enos, remember when Enos Cosby was murdered? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, yeah, Camille Cosby, uh, you know, said, you know, people should read this book. And, that you know, in her response to uh, her son's murder, wow. one of her recommendations is all Americans should read this book. So, yeah, occasionally you get uh, you get those responses but you want to know an irony here almost all white reviewers of racial matters thought it was a good book and i thought that was ironic because pretty much all the white reviewers misread it and that what do you mean well they, they almost see that that's a very unusual book i write about contentious topics and my, my work doesn't make everybody happy some people love it and some people hate it so there's usually no happy middle ground People love or hate my work, but with racial matters, it was different. Everybody loved it, and most of the white reviewers. What I noticed is they uh, misinterpreted the book, and by that I mean they interpreted the book as if I was saying it was all J. Edgar Hoover, Hoover's fault. And J. Edgar Hoover, of course, was the longtime FBI director from uh, you know 1924, even before that, really. He was one of the ramrods in the Bureau going back to 1919. But from 1924 to 1972, he ran the FBI. And he, he was, in fact, you know, a pretty racist guy, and he was in some ways pretty horrible. He had some good traits. I hate to say that, but he did. But in terms of black people, very few good traits. He was pretty much a monster. But my book didn't place the blame on him, per se. My book argued that Jagger Hoover did what he wanted to do because he was allowed to do it. People higher up, the Kennedys, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and so forth, they allowed Hoover to do what he wanted to do in black America. But the reviewers yeah. all argued that, you know, it was all Hoover's fault. 
Mm. And so I got unanimously great reviews, but I was still upset because, you know, most of the white reviewers just completely misinterpreted what I was saying. I am really pleased uh, to hear that because, as I said, I read your book um, some years ago and went back and reread it um, when I emailed you and talked about uh, getting you to come on the show uh, so that I could be uh, fresh in having a conversation about this book. And the thing that jumped out at me, the two words that I kept writing down, system, 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 um, just this is not just, and I mean, we're going to get more into detail about this, but um, this was not just a one-person thing. This wasn't even just an FBI thing. This is, uh, I, this would be a book I would point to uh, anyone who says that there is not a system of racism, white supremacy in place. I would give them your book and tell them to read it very slowly because I think uh, you do an excellent job of illustrating how this is, became a total team effort uh, to crush black people who were attempting to counter uh, racism, white supremacy. Um, but I want to go back to... Uh, well, yeah, it's basically permanent war. I mean, it, it, it's sort of loosened up now with Obama and so forth, but that's what I argue in the book, that this is not J. Edgar Hoover's fault. He, I mean, he is who he is, but he did what he did because he was allowed to do it, and he was allowed sure. to do it because the government essentially is, is a permanent war on the color line in this country. For sure. That's what I tried uh, to argue. I, I got you loud and clear. Um, I felt it was uh, pretty easy uh, if you read the book. Um, uh, and just backing on what you just said on page 8 of your book, uh, you said the history of a government that has been at odds more often than not over the past 200 years with its own non-white citizens. Um, before the FBI was even uh, established, uh, Marcus Garvey and the United uh, Negro Improvement Association, um, the Bureau of Investigation uh, and uh, Mr. J. Edgar Hoover, they uh, were working in opposition to Mr. Marcus Garvey. Uh, this is, you know, over 80 years ago before oh, you yes. had... It goes even back further than that. I mean, one of the, arguably the FBI's first big case was uh, against Jack Johnson. And, of course, he was the first black heavyweight boxing champion in the world. Yes, sir. And the Man Act case, a white slave traffic act case against Jack Johnson. Can you uh, share a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 by the way, the FBI was created in 1908, and it was it was known back then as the, just the Bureau of Investigation. The word federal doesn't get hooked on until 1935. Mm-hmm. But be that as it may, just call it the FBI. And so it's founded in 1908. And back back then, there's really not much, there are not many federal criminal laws for the FBI to investigate. There's only a handful. But two of the f- earliest federal laws are, number one, the, as I just mentioned, the Mann Act, M-A-N-N. Mm-hmm. That's the White Slave Traffic Act, which made it a federal crime to transport a woman across a state line for immoral purposes. And, of course, Jack Johnson, you know, the boxing champ, a black man, his fiancée is a white woman. So the government's going to use the Mann Act to go get him. And then a second early um, law that Congress passed made it a crime to transport a stolen prize fight film across the state line. Yeah. And, you know, and one of my theories is even today when you pop in a DVD to watch a movie and the first thing that comes up is, you know, don't violate copyright laws or the FBI is going to come get you. 
one of my theories, and I'm probably going to do a paper on this someday if I can pin it down, is uh, one little bitty reason you see that warning up there whenever you watch a movie. Uh, it's because of Jack Johnson and the FBI way back in 1910. But in any event, that's how the FBI got its start. But, but the FBI in, in black America is always a little bit mixed because way back then, the FBI is also investigating um, federal law violations on the issue of peonage. It's P-E-O-N-A-G-E. And now peonage is you know, it's almost a form of slavery. And an easy way to explain it is uh, uh, a black man in the South gets arrested for vagrancy and the judge finds him ten dollars and he doesn't have any money and so the judge binds his labor out to you know a cotton farmer or a turpentine camp operator in Florida or whatever and that you know camp owner charges this man you know room and board and all this stuff and so each day he works he owes the court more money mm. right he's supposed to work off his ten dollar fine but each day he works the fine gets bigger. And so he's basically held in peonage. And the F, when the FBI was started by Teddy Roosevelt, President Theodore Roosevelt, uh, that was one of Roosevelt's real concerns, about peonage, because that was a problem after slavery ended in the South. A lot of freedmen were held as peons. And so Roosevelt wanted to get involved in that, and he sent the FBI. So that's the funny thing about the FBI, when they're running after Jack Johnson and Marcus Garvey, they're also investigating peonage. They're investigating the Ku Klux Klan, and so they're like on both sides, and that that remains fairly consistent all the way up to the present. Uh, they're on both sides. In other words, the FBI will spy not just on Marcus Garvey or Jack Johnson or Martin Luther King, but they'll spy on Black America as a community you know, in its entirety. And yet, at the same time, the FBI will also investigate, you know, violations of uh, federal civil rights law. Mm-hmm. And that's all, including King. The FBI investigated the King assassination, even though that type of murder is not a federal crime. But the FBI got into it because the murderer, you know, James Earl Ray, deprived King of his civil rights by killing him. And so that's the, F- the way the FBI got into the King investigation. You know, right. the I want we'll talk, talk more about King, I'm sure, later. For sure. I want to uh, get back to Marcus Garvey because, as I said, most of the non-white people, victims of racism, white supremacy, that I come in contact with are not informed about what the FBI did in the so-called civil rights movement, and they are completely clueless about their involvement with Mr. Marcus Garvey. Um, in your book, you said that uh, Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover, hired four black men to work the case, and he assigned one of those men, James W. Jones, uh, to infiltrate the UNIA and to shadow Garvey in Harlem. Hoover attacked Garvey because because of the black leaders all around pro-Negroism and Garvey's doctrine of the Negro for the Negro. William Burns of the FBI said Garvey was the most prominent Negro agitator in the world today, and we, the FBI, have been on him. Uh, can you talk about their campaign against uh, Mr. Marcus Garvey? Yeah, sure. Uh, but first, people should realize Mar- Marcus Garvey was really a big deal. Uh, he's extremely important historically. Uh, it's, he, he doesn't really, you know, translate well into the present. 
hmm. you know, because, you know, it was uniform and, and this and that. He looked kind of goofy. And, and some of his stuff was pretty goofy. I mean, he's negotiating with the Ku Klux Klan and this and that. Yet at the same time, he represented an enormously powerful movement. And the real issue with the U.S. government and Marcus Garvey is they, as I said in the book, they, the government, the FBI, located, identified him as a dangerous person first, and then they went looking for a crime, you know, some way to put him in jail, deport him, whatever. And that's really scary when when you you know you identify your your target first, and then you start searching around for for a crime. Would it be accurate to say that he was? Uh, labeled by white people in the FBI as a dangerous person because of his efforts to counter racism, white supremacy? Oh, yeah, sure. But, I mean, it's even worse than that. I mean, the FBI essentially, for much of its history, now, not the entire FBI. A lot of FBI agents are, you know, decent people, and they do good work. They do legitimate criminal work. The the part of the FBI I write about is the political part that gets Mm -hmm. involved in a lot of this nonsense. Now, I believe it's worse than that. It's it's not simply that they identify Garvey as dangerous. The FBI basically identifies black people as dangerous across the board. Period. And their their logic there actually there's some logic to that. And their logic is black people in America are treated like garbage, and because they're treated like garbage, they, you know their loyalties are suspect, and therefore uh, they're ever present danger of being a fifth column. And it's crazy. Uh, fifth now, a, fifth, a fifth column. That's like a subversive force. You know, oh, okay. Termites burrowing in and all this stuff. But the logic is the same logic the FBI is using. If Black America, if the United States treats Black Americans like garbage, then their loyalties to the United States will be suspect. And so what you end up with is uh, an agency like the FBI. Yes, they're interested in Marcus Garvey. They're interested later on in Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and Huey and Bobby and all that and Jesse Jackson. But they're also interested in, in all black Americans, you know, wow. every single one. Wow. And so they not only have these, you know, these famous programs that target Jack Johnson and Marcus Garvey or the COINTELPROs in the 60s, but they have all these, uh, you know, community surveillance programs. You know, they, the FBI tries to recruit, for example, in, um, you know, what they used to call colored town. They go in and try to recruit barbers as informants. You know, because barber shops are off, you know, big, you know, social gathering places and a lot of talk and a lot of gossip. So the FBI makes a big push to recruit black barbers as informants. And they're not interested in spying on, you know, Marcus Garvey's barber. They're interested in just barbers in everyday black America. And so, again, it's it, the, the Bureau will, in, on the surveillance end, the Bureau would target these very prominent black men like Jack Johnson, Marcus Garvey, or at the middle of the 20th century, Malcolm and Martin and Bobby and Huey. But would, they would also target pretty much everybody. Wow. You know, that, that would be more passive surveillance. It's just information gathering. What the, what the FBI does against more prominent blacks is not always passive. It's sometimes going to be really, really aggressive. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, April 22. 2021 so i have 
been told this is our eighth study session on Jack Olson's Last Man Standing, the tragedy and triumph of Geronimo Pratt, the audio segment that we heard at the beginning. I had lots of options. There are lots of other documentaries talking about Pro and the Black Panther Party and uh, Democracy Now! and even NPR uh, has talked about Pro and uh, the different ramifications of the program. But I mean, hey, why venture out when we can just go back to the context of white supremacy first year returning to the archives. I'm just giving this for context and then we can get right to the audio. That was Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly, author of Racial Matters, the FBI secret file on black America from 1960 to 1972. Very important book. In fact, as you heard in the audio segment, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, she recommends that book at the very beginning of the ISIS papers, along with Neely Fuller Jr., the cows we return to the air in 2009 we do broadcast number one on february 21 2009 by april 2009 kenneth o'reilly is on the cows on the counter racist grind immediately and that segment right there that is from 2009 his first time on the program uh, in fact i remember back of the bus he used to repeat all the time black people are treated like garbage their loyalties are suspect. Incidentally, you can't be ignorant about racism if you have concluded that black people are treated like garbage. Anyway, we will get started. Make sure you check out Racial Matters and or Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly's visits, plural, to the cows. We will get started. Last Man Standing, Tragedy and Triumph of Geronimo Pratt. Audio Segment 1. Chapter 32 Original Anal Retentives Armed with the information from the Senate committee, Hanlon decided to apply heat to the FBI with increased use of the Freedom of Information Act. In response, the agency retreated into a familiar pattern of denial. Its customary reply to each specific request was the buff files contained nothing relevant on the subject. After more pressure, agents would admit that they found an item or two. Then they would produce a few pages, mostly blacked out. Kathy Ryan, Hanlon's young girlfriend, began referring to the FBI as the original anal retentives. U.S. Representative Pete McCloskey had better luck at extricating documents. One FBI memo showed that immediately after Pratt turned down an attempt to interview him in 1970, a Pro agent reported, in view of Pratt's adamant expression of hatred toward law enforcement personnel in general, no consideration is being given to re-interview Pratt for the purpose of development as a PRI informer. It is noted, however, that constant consideration is given to the possibility of the utilization of counterintelligence measures with efforts being directed toward neutralizing Pratt as an effective BPP functionary. 
five months later, Pratt had been neutralized by a charge of murder. Documents bearing the name Julius Butler were forwarded from McCloskey's congressional offices to Stuart Hanlon, but most of the contents had been blacked out. Other redacted files suggested a close liaison between Cointelpro and the LAPD, which had shanghaied the tennis court murder case from Santa Monica detectives. The LAPD produced a few documents on demand, but the chief's office reported that a tremendous amount of files had been shredded. Footnote 47. A police source later reported that the LAPD's written reports to the FBI about the Pratt case had occupied a bookcase 12 feet wide by 7 feet high. End of footnote. The California Attorney General claimed to have no paperwork relating to Pratt. The civil rights attorney, Leonard Wineglass, lending his assistance to Hanlon and the Pratt Defense Committee, was shocked to turn up documents confirming the existence of 40,000 pages of summary logs of round-the-clock FBI phone surveillance on Panther headquarters in Oakland. I needn't tell you how chilling the experience is to see Panthers laid bare and totally vulnerable over a four-year period to such total and complete surveillance, he wrote. Other FBI records confirmed Pratt's appearance in Oakland on December 20, 1968, but the agency claimed to have no wiretap logs for the date of the Santa Monica shootings two days earlier. Under the rusty ducts and peeling insulation in Stuart Hanlon's basement war room, a dozen unsalaried volunteers bumped sweaty knees and elbows amid screaming arguments about politics, law, and Hanlon's refusal to install air conditioning. With Pratt's civil rights case still pending in the courtroom of U.S. District Judge Slammin' Sammy Conti, it was time to collect evidence, prepare briefs, dig up legal citations, and get down to the pick-and-shovel work of trial preparation, but Hanlon found too much valuable time being wasted on personal disagreements and ego wars. Everything we did was so charged. We had a pitched battle over the first brief. Some of our people hated a draft that was written by me and Marnie Ryan and Johnny Mitchell. 200 pages of sweat and tears in six-point type. Some of the other guys wanted a diatribe against the federal government. We wanted logic and law. I said, God damn it, you can't win a legal argument by calling your opponent an asshole. I said, when are you fucking prima donnas gonna stop calling names and do some of the legal work? They thought the brief should start with Marcus Garvey, continue through Frederick Douglass and Toussaint L'Overture, and wind up with Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. I told them Judge Conti would read the first six pages and throw me in jail. One night, six of us got into a free-for-all. 
I threw one guy into a bookshelf across the room and took a swing at Dennis Cunningham. I loved Dennis Cunningham. He was a big Johnny Appleseed of a guy. A typical hippie lawyer worked his ass off and never took a fee. When it was over, I felt sick. I thought, why am I fighting my own people? From San Quentin, Geronimo insisted on second-guessing every decision, which meant dispatching daily runners across the Golden Gate Bridge and up Highway 101. Sometimes Hanlon found it simpler to make the half-hour drive himself. Geronimo considered all of us to be his legal aides. A couple of jailhouse annies had started to visit him, and he put them to work digging up evidence. I brought him legal papers and books and reports, which was cool, but he also insisted that I bring goodies, which wasn't so cool. They were always the wrong amount, the wrong flavor or brand. He'd say, what the fuck's the matter with you? Can't you do anything right? Well, we were all under stress and he was in solitary. Pre-trial depositions with prison officials and CDC administrators turned into slugging matches producing hundreds of pages that had to be transcribed by court reporters at $2 per page. Hanlon, known to his colleagues as the King of the Schmooze, solved the financial problem by making a poverty plea to Judge Conti, who surprised both sides by issuing an order permitting the complainants to tape record depositions and do their own transcribing. We take the tapes back to the hate, and our volunteers, Nancy Jacob and Michael Bumblebee, would type them overnight. Nancy was my secretary, and she was eight months pregnant. Michael was a San Francisco original. He was hired as a temp, but he ended up working on the Geronimo case and stayed till he died of AIDS. Sometimes he showed up in dresses, sometimes in a Girl Scout uniform. The office was so hot, you jerk your hand back from the doorknob. One night, I went to the basement, and Nancy and Michael were typing away in their Radio Shack headsets. I talked to them for a few minutes before I realized they were naked. Nancy looked like Nemu the whale. I said, hey, what? Nancy said, Stuart, are you ever going to put in air conditioning? In January 1978, with the civil rights lawsuit gaining momentum, Johnny Cochran phoned to tell Hanlon that he'd been offered the post of assistant district attorney under his old friend John Vandekamp, a Democrat who was shaking up the country's biggest law office. Cochran would be the number three man generally responsible for 600 prosecutors and specifically responsible for 85 deputies in four divisions, including the division that handled governmental corruption. Footnote 48. Including the Manson prosecutor, Vincent Ugliosi, and three young deputies who would later become involved in the O.J. Simpson murder trial, Gil Garcetti, Lance Ito, and William Hodgman. 
End of footnote. It seemed like a strange flip-flop for a lawyer who'd built a successful practice partially by representing victims of municipal high-handedness. he just won the Jerry Geisler Award, the highest honor of the Los Angeles Criminal Courts Bar Association. He was earning $300,000 a year. Vandekamp was offering 49000 It's a chance to make a difference, Cochran informed Hanlon over the phone. I'd be the first African-American ADA in L.A. I hope Vandekamp isn't looking for a token black, Hamlin said. I don't think you qualify. Cochran flew up to San Francisco and told his young colleague that he'd already discussed the offer with old friends like Tom Bradley, the first African-American mayor in Los Angeles history. Tom told me, there's no decision here. Take the damn job and enjoy it. Others had offered the same advice, but the strongest influence had come from Johnny L. Cochran Sr. Dad said, this was my opportunity to help others. How long is your appointment? Hanlon asked. Three years, which creates one serious problem. Don't worry about it. Pratt will be out of the hole long before your term's over. Then we'll work on sending him back to Morgan City. Put him out of your mind. I'll never put him out of my mind, Cochran replied. Geronimo was happy to be summoned to the visiting room, but he was surprised to see the look on his old friend's face. Johnny, he said, what's wrong? Cochran told him about the job offer and said, I couldn't accept it in good conscience without talking to you. I know how you feel about law enforcement and the judicial system, and I don't blame you. Only one question came to Geronimo's mind. Would it help your career? I could have an effect. Go for it, man. Cochran grinned and said, I knew you'd say that. In the six-year interim since losing the Pratt murder case, Cochran had successfully represented dozens of clients, but he heard from only one when his appointment was officially announced. A handmade card was inscribed, The news of your promotion is a happy thing to hear. Sure hope it brings you more success with every coming year. It was signed, G. Chapter 33, Dogfight In later years, the Pratt lawyers realized that they had grossly underestimated the California Department of Corrections' obsession with keeping their prisoner caged. To Hanlon and Cochran, it seemed such a simple matter to release him to the main line, especially after prison psychiatrists stopped rubber stamping earlier opinions and began offering positive evaluations. A report by L. G. Nuremberger, M. D., 
cited a diagnosis of anxiety neurosis, chronic, mild, secondary to combat stress and social maladjustment by history manifested by conflict arising from loyalties divided between two cultures. But the San Quentin psychiatrist added, status examination reveals that he is alert, quick thinking, and confident in his assessment of others. He shows no indication at this time of any psychotic process or organic disorder. Under discussion, Nuremberger wrote, this man came to maturity in a simple, constant, authoritarian, and racially segregated culture. He then entered military service and compiled an outstanding record while at the same time entering into a conflict of personal, racial, and national values. His post-war activities brought him to a leadership post in an authoritarian black group of revolutionary organization. If, as he contends, murder charges were part of a political plot, then psychological testimony is irrelevant to that portion of his offenses. In effect, the report was a clean bill of mental health. Soon after the Nuremberger evaluation, two high prison officials admitted in writing that the false charges about the Folsom bus scare had been retained in Pratt's jacket solely to justify his incarceration in the hole. But CDC officials in Sacramento continued to insist that they were dealing with a dangerous animal. Two years of the civil rights case were spent on depositions. For a week in July 1978, Geronimo answered questions, and in the end, he was the only combatant in the Q&A wars who didn't appear drained. As the lawsuit ground on, the Pratt legal team turned up information about measures that CDC officials had taken to hide evidence, including the mysterious loss of hundreds of pages from Geronimo's central file. A special security squad member at the prison testified that he'd seen a sergeant removing the file from the office. He told me he was informed to get rid of it, destroy it. A guard captain admitted that four Pratt files had been destroyed on orders of his superiors. At a later deposition, Warden George Sumner was asked to describe Pratt's influence on other prisoners. Pratt is a leader. He testified unexpectedly, and whether he is in the community or in prison, he is always a leader, and it's obvious to see him react with other inmates that he is a very influential leader. My feeling is that he has attempted to use it positively. Hanlon asked, Since you've been warden of San Quentin, has Mr. Pratt done anything that would make you believe he's a security risk to the prison or an escape risk? No. The warden introduced a document that seemed to contradict the official CDC position 
that it was necessary to separate Pratt from other black inmates. The report from the prison's General Subclassification Committee said that the inmate had influence, but it has proven to be beneficial to the operation of the unit rather than disruptive as many people would like you to believe. But a major blemish remained on Pratt's record. The attack on guard Michael M., which Hanlon had witnessed from a front row seat. M's original report glossed over Pratt's participation, but two other guards had claimed that he played an active role. Hanlon approached M for a written declaration. In his statement, the Asian American correctional officer, a Vietnam veteran himself, acknowledged that he'd been well acquainted with Pratt since 1974. In fact, Mr. Pratt saved me from serious injury at one time. I was physically assaulted by three black inmates, one of which had a prison-made knife in the San Quentin visiting room. Mr. Pratt participated in the attack on me. He made it look like he was helping the other inmates, but he kept getting in the way of the inmate with the knife, so that I only received a few minor scratches. I have never been able to tell anyone about this or put it in writing, for fear that Mr. Pratt might have a contract put on him or be retaliated against by other inmates for helping me. In my opinion, Mr. Pratt is neither a threat to staff, the security of the institution, nor an unusual escape risk. Another blemish in the Pratt jacket that he'd led escape attempts at Los Angeles County Jail was erased in a note from the L.A. County Sheriff. It is not true, Peter Pitches wrote. A fracas in the courtroom between defendants was not considered to be an escape attempt. While housed in the Hall of Justice, jail, Mr. Pratt was very cooperative and was a calming influence on the others housed in this area. As depositions ended and pretrial hearings began, slammin' Sammy Conti lived up to his billing. The judge held a California assistant attorney general in contempt for failing to reveal some documents and sentenced him to 60 days in jail. The judge scoffed at CDC officials who claimed that they'd accidentally mislaid files. You gentlemen had better find those mislaid files or you gentlemen are going to go to jail hand in hand. When Hanlon informed Conti that his client had been unfairly singled out in a training manual for guards, one of the state lawyers swore that no such document existed. The next morning, Hanlon found a copy in his mailbox. He opened to find that guard trainees at Modesto Junior College were being warned about the Black Liberation Army and advised that, in early 1974, the BLA began moving into West Coast areas. This is considered to be due to the fact that Elmer Geronimo Pratt is presently confined at San Quentin. 
Pratt is probably the most influential leader of the BLA at this time, with Cleaver in self-imposed exile. The BLA has made no secret of the fact that they intend to rescue Pratt from prison by any means necessary. Hanlon introduced the manual into evidence and Conti bawled out the state lawyers suggesting that they start bringing a change of underwear to court. The irascible judge took special delight in twitting an assistant attorney general who had a shy manner and a small voice. As she stood before him twisting her hands he would yell, If you can't talk loud enough for me to hear, then don't talk at all. Write me a brief. Sometimes the lawyer was so intimidated that she just stopped talking and sat. With the civil rights case in its third year, the judge issued a preliminary order that Geronimo be transferred to San Quentin's general population until the proceedings ended. Shocked CDC officials held emergency meetings in Sacramento. Tentative plans were made to transfer the prisoner to Vacaville, Folsom, Tehachapi, or other prisons, but the individual wardens resisted. Pratt's reputation had preceded him, and his jacket still contained Richard Kalustian's persistent warnings about future bloodbaths. At San Quentin, the prison's first reaction to Conti's order was to ignore it. But after the judge threatened contempt action, Geronimo was told to prepare for transfer to the main line. Then, four white inmates were killed in a racial incident and the prison was locked down. Weeks later, he was looking out his peephole when the newest deputy warden, an African-American named Reginald Pulley, visited his cell. I've been hearing about you, Mr. Pratt, Pulley said. You've got a lot of folks pulling for you. Then why am I still in the hole? Geronimo asked. A few days later, Pulley signed his transfer to the main line. It took only two days for the administration to learn that the Pratt truculence about social injustice remained unchanged. He was assigned to work in the furniture factory but refused the job on the grounds that a salary of 10 cents an hour was tantamount to slavery. Haven't you heard about the Emancipation Proclamation? He asked the furniture shop foreman. The next day he got a Ducat written order to report to the factory early in the morning. He checked out the conditions, examined the equipment, and concluded that it was a sweatshop. He was agitating the workers to strike when the prison goon squad returned him to his cell. Days before the hearing on the prison lawsuit was finally due to open, Stuart Hanlon was still drawing up plans for a prop that would focus the jurors' attention. He used what he called demonstrative evidence in other cases and found that it impressed juries. He decided that his current show-and-tell project would be a life-size replica of Pratt's first and worst cell in the hole at San Quentin. 
it would be made of heavy cardboard with a barred front door, walls, a toilet hole in the floor, and a rack with no mattress. The California Department of Corrections cried foul when Hanlon showed up at the prison to measure the cells in the adjustment center. The dimensions, he was told, were confidential. They don't want the public to know how small those cells are, Hanlon exploded to Pratt in the visiting room. Geronimo estimated the dimensions at six by seven feet, but Hanlon wanted precise figures. Legal graphics expert Stephen Morris, a courtroom veteran, was also turned away by the Q administrators. Frustrated, Hanlon took the problem to Judge Conti. By that time, the AG's office had thoroughly pissed off the judge. He ordered San Quentin to let us in and said if they didn't, he'd jail the whole damn administration. That's when I fully realized that a federal judge has powers next to God. We went in and took measurements and photographs and came back to my office and built our model. At the trial in the fall of 1978, Hanlon trundled his creation into court and, with Morris's assistance, erected it square in front of the jury box where it resembled a storage closet. When the assistant attorney general objected to the display, Hanlon asked, Are you trying to suppress evidence the same way you suppressed my client's civil rights? The judge allowed the exhibit to stand. Hanlon introduced documentary evidence about the caging of human beings. I don't think a place more destructive of a man's mental health could be devised if we tried. Soledad Prison's chief psychiatrist had said in 1971. Another prison psychiatrist had called the San Quentin Hole so bad that corporal punishment or old-fashioned third-degree methods would be preferable. In the days before closing arguments, Hanlon rehearsed so long and hard that he almost lost his voice. This was the most important case of my life in an area I really cared about, inmates' rights, and we were up against the whole damn state of California. The night before closing arguments, I told my girlfriend Kathy, I can't do it. My voice is gone. I'm too keyed up. She drove me out to Ocean Beach to calm me down. She said, Hear the seals? I said, Yeah, that's what I'll sound like tomorrow. He addressed the jury for three hours. Remembering Judge Conti's original orders, he concentrated on showing that Pratt had been victimized for his political beliefs. Then he threw in an appeal to each juror's conscience. You can't let the Department of Corrections get away with this. These people feel impervious to the rest of us. They feel they can do whatever they want to me, to you, to the judge, to Geronimo Pratt. They feel they can come into this courtroom and lie, cheat, fabricate evidence, and break the law the same way they broke it when they threw this man into his cage 
for offenses that he could not, would not, and did not commit. He gestured toward his client, then lowered his voice and said, This case isn't about money. This case is about the torture of a fellow human being, a wounded war hero, a man with terrible injuries to mind and body. Imagine a man in such pain that he prefers to curl up on a concrete floor. Imagine needle fragments of steel irritating your bowels night after night. Imagine having to use a hole in the floor for a toilet. Imagine sleeping in your own body waste. He pointed to the mock-up. I hope each of you will step inside, he croaked. See how it feels. Reach out and touch the walls. Then imagine what it's like to live in something like this 23 hours a day for eight straight years. An hour after the jury went out, the foreman sent a note asking that the cardboard cell be moved to the deliberation room. Hanlon was encouraged. They want to go inside that thing, he told Pratt. They're getting our point. After a short deliberation, the jury ruled that the CDC had violated Elmer Gerard Pratt's rights under the First and Fourteenth Amendments and awarded him a dollar in damages. This was the only civil case I'd ever done in my life, and I should never have emphasized that it wasn't about money, Hanlon said ruefully, but it wasn't. We interviewed jurors, and they said the reason they didn't award a million bucks in damages was because G was the healthiest person in the courtroom. Even after solitary confinement, he was in better shape than the rest of us. The judge awarded $125,000 in attorney's fees. At a tequila party in his basement office, Hanlon asked each member of the defense committee to jot down a fee for services. I know you'll be fair, he said. Pratt and his new wife, Linda Session, were allotted $35,000. Hanlon, Marnie Ryan, John Mitchell, and the other lawyers ended up with $10,000 each. The naked office staffers, Nancy Jacob and Michael Bumblebee, were awarded $1,000 and instructed to buy clothes. Hanlon came out of the trial exhausted. That civil rights case was like a prize fight that went on for six years, 10,000 rounds, and you're knocked on your ass 50 times before you start doing a little counterpunching of your own, and then you're knocked on your ass again. For a while, I slipped into cocaine. The trial lawyer's best friend. At San Francisco parties, they gave it out like M&M's. It came between me and Kathy. I figured she was just being uptight, and I was hip. It took me a while to find out how wrong I was. 
Her sister, Marnie, worked herself numb on the Pratt case and went into exile in Cambodia to counsel the poor. Johnny Mitchell must have put in a thousand billable hours with nobody to bill. He finally gave up his practice and became a law professor at the University of Puget Sound. Nobody involved in defending Geronimo was ever the same again, with one exception. Chapter 34 Mainline By the time Geronimo Pratt was transferred from solitary confinement to the general population in 1978, his name had become known in every cell block in the California penal system. In CDC administrative and political circles, he was still regarded as a potential Nat Turner who could stir up the slaves with a few sharp words. The day I finally got out the hole, rumors were flying. I was going to set up a black assault unit and kill the Mexican mafia so the blacks could take over the prison. I was going to lead a mass breakout and we were all going to sail across the ocean and set up a new society. I mean, it was crazy. Man, I wasn't doing nothing. I was just happy to get out of the hole. Now that he could mingle with other prisoners, Pratt learned that the African Americans regarded him as a leader, a figure of myth. A fellow inmate described the move to the main line as Nelson Mandela returning to South Africa. After Geronimo had eaten his last soggy sandwich in the adjustment center, the steel door slid open and two smiling inmates appeared with an empty flatbed cart. One of them says, San Quentin Worldwide Movers. The black prisoners that ran the main line had sent Little John Willie and Henry Aldridge to help me move. They took me to D-section second tier. I couldn't believe that trip. No guards, no escort, no shackles, just me, Willie, and Henry. They told me I had 100% support from black prisoners, but best to stay cool for a day or two. The Aryan Brotherhood was restless, and some of the Mexicans wondered about my intentions. When we reached the tier, every eye was watching, everybody ready for action. If anybody even looked like he was going to raise a hand, blood was going to flow. I had total protection, disciplined black youngsters, some of them ex-Panthers, directed by elders like Troop Webb. He was 60 out of the old L.A. gangs that used to fight the Pachucos. High Society Red gave me a big handshake. He was a pimp and a hustler out of Oakland, a high yella, and I mean high yella, about 6'9". Turned out he came from Meadow Forks Bottom, Louisiana. 
I saw a few guys I'd known in the hole and some other homies and another guy who was so quiet you could barely hear him talk. Turned out he was a multiple rapist. These dudes ran the main line. Never mind the prison manual. These were the Capi di Tutti Capi. The guards had nothing to do with nothing. For several days, Geronimo endured culture shock. He now enjoyed a toilet, sink, cot, and mattress. His cell door was usually unlocked. He made his first visit to the mess hall in a time warp. I hadn't seen a real dish or eaten with a metal spoon for eight years. In the hole, you eat off paper plates with your fingers or a soft plastic spoon that you can't turn into a shank. I was warned to stay away from the mess hall. That's where the shit jumps off. But I didn't want to look like no pussy on my first day. The Muslims sent an escort, treated me like a Maasai king. I'm saying, look, fellas, I don't need no bodyguards. I said, Shalom Aleikum, my brothers, but please let me walk in by myself. They finally said, yes, sir, and backed off. In the mess hall, I met some homies, Cole, LeBeau, Junie Boy, Heron Thatch, Louisiana Blackie, I look around and see chairs, tables, spoons, trays, and a hot food line. Everything tasted like a Howard Johnson's. So good. One of the Mexicans I taught at L.A. County Jail came over and told me I was cool with the Hispanics. After that first day, my food was specially prepared. All the prison elite ate in their cells. Trooper Webb hadn't been inside the mess hall in three years. Every morning, the guys from culinary brought us grits, eggs, toast, fried chicken, coffee, juice, all prepared by professional cooks. Later on, I started kicking them something down. A few bucks here and there. Within a few weeks, his new house had been transformed by his acolytes. They gave me a gilded cage, fixed me up with tile floors and a washbowl from a ceramic shop, papered my walls and carpeted my floor. In the carpentry shop, they made a beautiful wooden headboard for my bed with remote buttons for my TV and radio. Somebody brought me a hot plate and skillet and a little refrigerator. They put curtains across my bars and a pulley system so I could open and shut them with a cord while I was in bed. They lifted my bunk high off the floor to give me more living space underneath and they made me a ladder to climb up. I kept telling them, no, no, thanks a lot. You're focusing too much attention on me. But I didn't want to hurt their feelings. In the big mainline yard, 
he learned that he was a prison hero. I tried to figure out why. One of the old timers told me it was for the things I didn't do when I was in the hole. Didn't turn snitch. Didn't turn punk. Footnote 52. Homosexual. End of footnote. Didn't take sides. Didn't suck up to the guards or the staff. Ran my laps in the yard. Did my celestinics. Kept up my body. Read my books. And kept my mouth shut. I didn't do none of those things to be a hero. It was just my way and they respected it. Q was like a township in those days run by the prisoners. The wardens and the guards stayed back except that a few of them brought in weed, heroin, cocaine, meth, sleeping pills, uppers. I didn't touch the hard stuff but sometimes I smoked weed for calmness. Guards would come by when you were smoking and pass right on. The only thing that scared them was prune liquor. Jake, Pruno, Raisin Jack, that stuff could tear you up. A Mexican got drunk on Pruno and killed one of the nicest guards with a 40-pound weight splattered his brains all over the laundry. When the Mexican sobered up, he cried and cried. After a while, he killed himself. Geronimo enjoyed his gilded cage for a year until the Los Angeles Times ran an expose about coddled prisoners. We went back to bare cells. That was cool with me as long as they let me keep my little desk. I was studying anthropology, geology, behavioral science, chemistry, philosophy, subjects they didn't teach at Morgan City Colored High. I had access to the law library. Couldn't complain. When we had movies on the main line, professional entertainers and conjugal visits. That's when Ashaki and I got close. The couple had been married for a year when a counselor informed Pratt that he was eligible for a 48-hour family visit. The accommodations consisted of an oversized trailer with a bedroom view of San Francisco Bay. The most expensive real estate in California, Geronimo told Ashiki as a smiling guard escorted them into the visiting area. No walls or barbed wire could be seen from the trailer. Everyone involved in the visit was kind and helpful. I think they're trying to make up for my years in the hole, he told Ashaki. They know. They know. He told her about the neighborhood called Across the Tracks and she told him about life in a nearby housing project where some of the other black residents were as bigoted as any Grand Klegel. Ashaki said she would like to have children someday, but in a nice home in a normal setting. Geronimo got the point. When it was time to say goodbye, Ashaki shyly told her husband that she loved him. Geronimo was embarrassed.
Look, baby, he said, something kills your emotions in prison. You mean love? He nodded. She said she would take her chances. Chapter 35 Find the Rats The Pratt shock troopers regrouped to prepare for his scheduled appearance before the California Community Release Board in January 1979. After eight years, it was his first realistic chance at parole, and Hanlon and the other attorneys had no trouble collecting letters and affidavits of support. A petition signed by U.S. Representative Ron Dellums and other prominent Californians called for immediate release. The notoriety of the case should not cause the case to be judged more harshly nor less harshly than normal, Dellums wrote. Mr. Pratt is an individual who has served a considerable amount of hard time. You should take into account the mood of the country and of the correctional community at the time Mr. Pratt was convicted. The Southern Africa Solidarity Committee questioned the original verdict. It is clear that Mr. Pratt has been the victim of an elaborate frame-up as part of the government's COINTELPRO program to crush the black liberation movement. Timothy Pratt, an assistant professor of political science at the University of the District of Columbia, wrote that his brother should be paroled to his custody enjoying the things that we did as children, fishing and enjoying the outdoors. This country out here is beautiful during this time of year, and I know he will enjoy it. At the parole hearing, the latest warnings by Richard Kalustian were read into the record. The deputy DA charged that Pratt had committed other crimes and should never be paroled. Despite any hollow words, if released, he will undoubtedly attempt to kill those who he believes put him in prison. Hanlon characterized Kalustian's remarks as the unsupported ravings of a mind so totally biased and or unbalanced as to warrant little weight or consideration, that the district attorney would have the unbelievable temerity to also make accusations regarding several unproven assaults and murders unrelated to the present charge bespeaks the magnitude of his bias and his total lack of commitment to making any fair presentation. Hanlon introduced a statement by San Quentin Warden George Sumner. Mr. Pratt relates well with staff and inmates of all ethnic backgrounds, has a good attitude, is helpful in internal relations with other blacks, and resisted efforts to become involved in incidents and has helped forestall potential incidents. Most remarkably, Hanlon told the parole board members, Mr. Pratt is a man who has maintained his decency and his congenial way of dealing with people throughout a hellish nightmare pervaded by his persistent stance that he was framed for murder by the FBI 
haunted by the murder of his first wife and unborn child and tormented by over seven years of unjust segregation in the whole. The young attorney's protestations were lost in a broadside of accusations, some entirely new and original, that were fired by anti-Pratt witnesses. LAPD Sergeant W.C. Hines echoed Kalustian's description of the cruelty of the tennis court shootings and added, in the opinion of Los Angeles law enforcement officers, this defendant, if released, would become a rallying point for a long, defunct Black Panther organization in Los Angeles. We urge you not to release him to prey on the citizens of Los Angeles again. Kenneth Olson, now physically recovered, made a passionate statement. I received several phone threats on my life during the trial. This caused added tension and fear in me and concern for the safety of my minor children. I cannot believe that any individual that would place an unarmed man and woman face down on a tennis court and then attempt to execute them by shooting them in the head would be allowed his freedom to kill someone else's wife and deprive his children of their mother. George Tilsch, Santa Monica Chief of Police, offered color photos of the bleeding Carolyn Olson lying on the tennis court. Tilsch told the board that the pictures were the best evidence that the parole should be denied. The members agreed unanimously the inmate could apply again in two years. Hanlon and Pratt had expected a turndown for political reasons as manifested in the LAPD's comment about the potential revival of the Black Panthers. Meanwhile, more exculpatory evidence was being turned up by freedom of information requests and the continuous pressure from Geronimo and his volunteers. By the time of the parole board's turndown, FOI demands had produced a statement by the FBI that Julius Carl Butler supplied no information but that Cointelpro moles might have been present at defense strategy sessions during the murder trial. Hanlon was enthusiastic. Even without proof of Butler's complicity, this was potential grounds for a new trial. I knew it, Johnny Cochran said when he heard the news. By virtue of his job as assistant district attorney, he was nominally divorced from the case, but he remained an interested observer. He told Hanlon, Now we gotta find the rats. A few days after the FBI distanced itself from Julius Butler, it reversed its field again. Cornered by still more FOI demands, the agency was forced to admit that its operatives had held 33 meetings with Butler before and after the tennis court shootings. The latest admission was diluted by a strained discussion about the definition of informant. 
any confusion about Julius Butler's status with the FBI, a memo argued, was understandable in light of the contrast between the broad dictionary definition of informant and the precise law enforcement usage of that term. Under the dictionary definition, Butler would be considered an informant for he supplied information to the FBI. But under the definition in the FBI manual, the beautician would be merely a probationary informant, someone who was being cultivated as an informant. The memo added that questions about definitions were not enlightening, certainly, FBI labels are not critical. What mattered, the agency argued, is whether Pratt was denied a fair trial because the jury was not told Butler supplied information to the FBI. For his part, the hairstylist denied the sophistry and added the FBI to the list of those who were lying about him. Energized by the latest FBI admissions, Pratt's investigators re-interviewed LAPD Sergeant Dwayne Rice about the mysterious insurance letter. Rice, retired from the force and working security for the entertainer Sammy Davis Jr., told them that Butler had handed him the letter at a street corner rendezvous, extracted a promise that it be kept sealed until his death, then turned to walk away. Butler had taken a few steps when two FBI men approached and demanded that Rice give up the letter. The sergeant told them to ask permission from Butler, still within earshot. One of the agents yelled, Julius! But Butler kept walking. Rice said it had seemed to him that Butler and the FBI agents enjoyed a familiarity. The sergeant's refusal to break his promise was all that had kept the letter private for 14 months despite FBI threats to indict him for obstruction of justice. He seemed annoyed that Butler and the FBI had put him in the middle. I can't wait to get Butler back on the stand, Hanlon told Geronimo. I want to see his face when I ask him to explain why the FBI was a few feet away when he handed over the envelope. That's a hell of a coincidence. They knew what was inside, too, Geronimo said. Man, those dudes sure know how to follow orders. Whose orders? J. Edgar Hoover. Neutralize him. Hanlon was quiet for a moment, then said, All that bullshit about the letter was to keep the snitch jacket off Julio. They didn't want him to testify as an FBI informer. They wanted him to testify as a poor, frightened guy who tried to keep his letter secret. That way, the jury is sympathetic. He's a victim. He's a hero. Attorney Margaret 
Marnie Ryan checked in to the basement command post with new information on the state's star forensics witness, Dwayne Wolfer, who'd made a crucial identification of the murder weapon based on nicks on the shell casings. Ryan confirmed reports that Wolfer had a record of professional difficulties and had been disqualified from serving on civil service interview boards. She'd solicited the expertise of Lindbergh B. Miller, a former supervising criminalist for the LAPD, and asked him to review Wolfer's procedures. The UCLA lecturer on forensics responded that the accuracy of the shell casings comparison test is absolutely dependent on the integrity of the tester. Ryan prepared an affidavit noting that a state court of appeal had charged Wolfer with testimony bordering on the perjurous in a recent case and that he'd resigned from the California Association of Criminalists and the American Academy of Forensic Science while under investigation for gross incompetence in the Sirhan Sirhan murder case and unethical conduct in another murder case. Armed with new information, Hanlon began drafting a motion for a writ of habeas corpus, a legal device variously described by criminal defense lawyers as the great writ and the safeguard and palladium of our liberties. Habeas corpus was the safety net that gave prisoners an ongoing opportunity to prove that they were imprisoned unlawfully. Hanlon reported back to Geronimo that our young lawyers are really starting to kick ass. We got enough evidence to overturn five convictions. Pratt was so encouraged that he turned his attention to his future outside the walls. He bore down on his studies in behavioral science, anthropology, philosophy, and geology. He enrolled in a class in public speaking, but dropped out when he realized that his Louisiana accent was no more adjustable than his bow legs. It didn't matter. Soon, he would be rescuing Ashaki from her ratty housing project and taking her home to Morgan City to start a family. It's okay, darling, he told her on their next conjugal visit. I'm coming out of this place. You want a baby? Come on. We'll have our own little planned parenthood thing. Two months later, she told him she was pregnant. Context of white supremacy, my favorite word in this section of the text this week, calling someone a big and much less black people bigots. Woo, still learning. Uh, so that is our first audio segment, Last Man Standing. We'll pick up second audio segment, uh, Find the Rats. That will be coming up along with more O.J. Simpson references. As I read this week, I said, wow, we there was a very deliberate reason that I selected this book months ago, beginning of this year. So-called we were reading O.J. Simpson and I said emphatically, there's nothing to think about. The next book for us to read is Last Man Standing like that is the follow up to this like easy. It's not even a thought. 
And it, like I said, I've read this book before, but it has been some years uh, since I read this book. But it's like, don't they talk about the O.J. Simpson case? Like, and progressively, because it, it goes for so long, this case doesn't conclude until years after the O.J. Simpson case is done that it will, as we get to the end of this book, it will go full circle. And we'll be right back with all the gang that we had before. Marshall, some of them came up this week. Bill Hodgman, Gil Garcetti, all the familiar names that we know and love from the O.J. Simpson drama. So I said, oh, yes, there was a very deliberate re along with Johnny Cochran and, you know, lots else. But I mean, we will end right back where we started at. Arenthal James, all roads lead to Arenthal James. In fact, I even heard it today. Somebody else mentioned O.J. Simpson. Everything comes back at six degrees of O.J. Simpson. Let's get to the first person who wrote in about this here book and see if we get any O.J. Simpson references here. This is one of our investors. Uh, let's see. He writes in original anal, anal retentives. Number one, Johnny, January 1978, Johnny Cochran offered the post of assistant D.A. Think, 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 think. Number one, footnote including working with Vincent Bugliosi, Gil Garcetti, Lance Ito, and William Hodgman. I suspect this was important to Johnny Cochran's work of the OJ case, since it gave him direct insight into tactics of prosecutors and the judge. There may have there may be a lesson in this try to obtain counter racist information from every experience. Mm. Number two, Cochran told him, Pratt, about the job offer. I couldn't accept it in good conscience without talking to you. Would it help your career? I knew you'd say that. Another reason to revere Johnny Cochran. What a legend. And Geronimo Pratt. He writes a card. <sighs> Grandsester, Johnny L. Cochran Jr. Next chapter, dogfight. Number one, a report by L.G. Nuremberger, M.D., cited a diagnosis of anxiety, neurosis, chronic, mild, secondary, to combat stress. This passage made me think of the book The Protest Psychosis by Jonathan Metzl. I think this author may have been a guest on the cows, not an author, or the book at least has been mentioned on the cows many, many times. Two, after a short deliberation on the jury, ruled that the CDC had violated Elmer Gerard Pratt's rights under the First and Fourteenth Amendments, judge awarded $125,000. Nobody involved in defending Geronimo was ever the same with one exception is the exception Linda Sessions aka Pratt's wife aka Ashaki Pratt I am not clear on the meaning of this I said the same thing because it wasn't clear now maybe he's going to clear this up as we proceed I also thought since he did say I have to double check to make sure it's uh, within the same or it is within the same chapter when the jury said you know the person who looked like they were in the best shape was Geronimo Pratt it may have been Pratt was the one who was not changed that everybody else kind of came through this you know stressed or jaded about law whatever it is Uh, however they felt exhausted uh, about all of this cocaine uh, that Mr. Pratt you know doing his exercises and eating and you know whatever else he was doing it could have been Pratt but I, I, I agree that's just my theory I was guessing too because it was not made clear so other people can let us know who do you think uh, Olson was referring to when he said nobody involved in defending Geronimo was ever the same. I don't think 
It could be Johnny Cochran because I think he says pretty clearly in his own book uh, and throughout this book as voiced by Olson that this case kind of permanently changed the way that he thought about the law and he was so naive going in. So I don't think it could be Johnny Cochran. Uh, next chapter, Mainline. These dudes ran the Mainline, never mind the personal manual. These were Capi di Tutti Capi. The guards had nothing to do with nothing. I think this statement exemplifies the confusion of non-white victims, including myself. This is the author speaking, but Gus still confused too. The incarcerated only had the illusion of being in charge. Racist man and racist woman are ultimately in charge. Absolutely. They could have put all of them in, you know, greater confinement. Had them with no toilet just like Geronimo Pratt if they wanted to. Number two, within a few weeks, his new house had been transformed by his acolytes. They gave me a gilded cage. Maybe a metaphor for how many victims live outside of greater confinement in gilded cages. Good point. Number three, a shocky. She told him about life in a nearby housing project where some of the other black residents, my word, some of the other black residents were as bigoted as any grand legal. Another example of confusion. So fitting for right now, too. Anti-blackness exhibited by victims is not the same as racism, white supremacy, self-hatred leading to mistreatment among non-white victims is expected and ultimately due to racist man and racist woman and racist child in the global system of white supremacy racism. I just keep coming back to the Panthers like didn't they say that they somebody right they tried to blame it on Geronimo Pratt and Mr. Julius Butler. Uh, knocked out this young Ollie Taylor's teeth and then they wouldn't go to help testify to keep Geronimo Pratt from being convicted of this trumped up lie of a charge were these all Asian members or were these just other black people mistreating black people like nobody likes anybody in the system of white supremacy and just like in the prison how they said they get the, the Mexicans to fight against the black people the people who are most to blame what he just said racist man racist woman racist child usual suspects always but nobody likes anybody brothers and sisters uh the number is 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND black brother black brother hell press star 61 if you would like to participate number again Seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Have to remember to link Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly his visit on the cows. I just got that book. I read that book. uh, I've read it a few times, but I didn't like own a copy in my personal library. And uh, just in the process of moving, had that book plopped back in my hands by someone who hasn't even read it. Uh, And they were talking about it was kind of uh, challenging to read. And it's it's kind of a larger larger book. Kenneth O'Reilly's Racial Matters. Well, I won't say larger, but it's not like a it's not a 200 page book. I'll put it that way. It's, it's substantially larger and it's got lots of footnotes and lots more footnotes than this, which I appreciate because it's got lots of sources. It's got lots of other books that you can go read uh, about Cointel pro. And where did you get this information from talking about the FBI killed Fred Hampton or Mark Clark, 
uh, Bunchy Carter or set up Geronimo Pratt. He talks about the Pratt case in that book as well. Uh, but where did you get this information from and going through the FBI files, reading some of the records directly? Like it's a pretty good book and you can you know hear what he had to say on the program. But just again, what have we been doing for a decade of broadcasting? The not the first year, literally the first few days of the cows returning to the air 2009. Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly, Racial Matters, the FBI secret file on black America, 1960 to 1972. Dozen years. Folks who dialed in with a hand up, you have commentary on the first portion of the reading. Line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Henry in Chicago. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, greetings, Gus, and uh, greetings to all the callers and listeners. Uh, the last paragraph on page 234 and the beginning of page 235, the, uh, when uh, Stuart Hanlon was preparing uh, for the trial and he was getting into this argument with, I guess, some of the other uh, lawyers that were working with him, uh, you know, and then he was saying, you know, uh, God damn it, you can't win a legal argument by calling your opponent an asshole. And when are you fucking prima donnas going to stop name calling and do some legal work? And then they thought that the brief should start with Marcus Garvey and continue with Frederick Douglass and Malcolm, uh, Malcolm X. And I told them that the judge would read the first six pages and throw me in the jail. And then what was more important, uh, and then he got into a fight with Dennis Cunningham, but what was more important was he asked himself, why am I fighting my own people? And I thought that was interesting because of the fact that, you know, white people understand codification. And this is what he was, you know, getting at, uh, I guess, with his own people. You know, why am I fighting my own people? And also telling them about name calling and everything. So uh, they were getting off code and he immediately got them back on code. So this is the example of white people being being able to be codified. Um, I was looking at these figures uh, in regards to Johnny Cochran taking the job at the uh, at the LA uh, um, at the DA's office, and uh, he said that they said that in on page two thirty six that he was already earning three hundred thousand dollars a year. And he said uh, Van de Camp was offering him forty nine thousand, which you know that's a that's a that's a uh, a significant decrease. But you know I inputted these numbers in uh, in the inflation calculator, and uh, apparently in nineteen seventy eight uh, three hundred thousand dollars now would equate to one point two million dollars. And forty nine thousand dollars from nineteen seventy eight would now equate to two hundred thousand dollars. So that actually is not not bad uh, change, but still a significant uh, decrease uh, in his salary. Uh, another one uh, when I was looking on page two forty five about uh, uh, his civil rights case and the judge uh, two forty five. Uh, the judge awarded uh, $125,000 in attorney fees. Uh, now that would translate to $507,000. Uh, Pratt and his wife was awarded uh, $35,000. Uh, 
uh, today that will be worth $142,000. So not uh, not bad. Um, the guards, uh, on page 249, when they were talking about the guards and uh, how they were kind of, you know, keeping up the criminal enterprise in in the prison, uh, kind of reminds you, well, guards are like policemen and just like the race soldier police, you know, they're also keeping up the criminal enterprise uh, from the, uh, in the outside. So no surprise that San Quentin guards are passing weed and doing all of the kind of stuff to the prisoners um, and also drugging them as well. And uh, first time I've heard Klegel uh, on 250, you, you had mentioned it about, you know, uh, 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 I guess Ashaki was calling black residents that were bigoted in uh, Grant Klegel. And, you know, I looked it up, and that's the first time I've heard that name before. It's a, a Ku Klux Klan officer. And, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, you you know, you can't identify you know, black people who hate, you know, who displays anti-blackness, uh, white terrorists, you know, and that's what, that's what, a, that's what a Klan member is. He's a terrorist. Uh, so, uh, that's, uh, VGQ, but, uh, that's all I have on me in my life. Sometimes the, 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 the grand Klegel will also be the sheriff. I don't know uh, how many black people can go around and and be bigots and, you know, be ugly to so-called Asian people and then also be on the LAPD. Maybe I'm not, uh, you know, informed enough. Uh, Excellent info on the uh, inflation calculator to get the amount. I mean, talk about pay cut for Johnny L. Cochran Jr. to go and do this job like yikes Uh, let's see Uh, other folks who have commentary much obliged from Henry in Chicago other uh, folks if you have commentary on the first section star six one as I'm going through to look at some of my notes as well from the first portion I will say one thing that stuck out the reason we're reading this book to begin with is because we read O.J. Simpson. The reason we read that, Jeff Tubin exposing himself on Zoom inappropriate sexual conduct now at the very beginning of the section on anal retentive, the original anal retentive, talk about the man not and all the homoeroticism in this text I say uh, they would mostly redacted pages from the FBI blah, blah, blah. Kathy Ryan, Hanlon's young girlfriend began referring to the FBI as the original anal retentives and I just thought hmm with all this because uh, I mean this is the same time Woody Allen can have a young girlfriend who is young enough to be his child how young exactly is Hamlin because this is the 70s free love and you know how much of an age difference are we talking about is this the, the uh, my, my fella down in, in Miami um was friends with uh, all these pedo- even loosely could I keep bringing up his name because he's connected to uh, 
this case with O.J. Simpson uh, and Alan Dershowitz uh, representing him. He just has that Netflix documentary about where uh, he was doing all the incorrect uh, sexual conduct as well. I'm sure his name will come to me in a second. But there's so much sexual incorrect behavior uh, in the system of white supremacy. And a lot of times just things like that. It'll just be young girlfriend and not, oh, yikes, this would be statutory rape or something of that nature. Anywho, uh, let's see. Other notes from this section, the FBI wiretapping Pratt so they know that he's not here. They have a bookcase like, my goodness, white people are not ignorant about racism, white supremacy. The book, uh, The Glass House Tapes, uh, that book is specifically about the LAPD's involvement in the Cointel Pro program. And it was not just Pratt where they had uh, the exact dimensions the FBI LAPD's written reports to the, to the FBI about the Pratt case had occupied a bookcase 12 feet wide that is taller than an NBA regulation basketball hoop by seven feet wide. White people are not ignorant about racism. And I mean, that is a lot of paperwork for one person. I don't remember how much paperwork that they said they had for OJ Simpson, but one person, 12 by seven bookcase of files about you and a crime you did not commit. And all the other nefarious activity where we've been spying on you and all the rest. Uh, where he's talking about the lawyers, I thought, great point, white people. Hey, stop all that name calling. We got, what is our objective? What are we trying to accomplish here instead of just squabbling and bickering? Let's get things accomplished. Uh, but this is like, I think, at least the second time where the attorneys, they're getting ready to go into, uh, the defense attorneys are preparing to go into the trial. I think, remember before Johnny Cochran, they put Mr. Pratt on the stand. He says, You were in the U.S. Army, the United States imperial army yes <laughs> it's like what in the world what is wrong with you <laughs> like this is not the time for you to get up here and grandstand and give your political views and all that like get it together same thing with this like we are not going in here and giving them quotes from frederick Douglass and malcolm X. we are trying to win a trial like you can do that on your free time go hang out in berkeley with the students and do some acid or whatever like, what are you doing man Jeez, uh, follow logic. Let's see. Massive pay cut. Can't emphasize enough. Even for them to go from three hundred thousand dollars to forty nine thousand for a chance to make a difference. Wow. And then, according to his own testimony, he gets disgusted seeing all these cases that the police are bringing against black people, where he knows they're practicing racism white supremacy much like this case and a rental James Simpson and I'm being asked to prosecute and he said that that's in his book he said it in interviews he said it repeatedly that why well, I probably jump in it he'll probably yeah probably jump we'll just keep that in mind uh, let's see and as I said we already get some of familiar names uh, Lance Ito and all the rest of the folks that are going to be his co-workers here this guy Geronimo Pratt is amazing talk about grandcester now he's been in greater confinement solitary confinement sleeping in his own waist and in pain from his you know war injuries and such going through all of this 
and your lawyer black guy, he's going to go and join the man, join the system, be a prosecuting attorney and probably lock up some black people. As he said, yep, that's what it's going to be. Uh, and he's not over here. What? You know, Count Coon, you sell out. You know, no count. You're leaving me here and learn. Forget about me and all the rest of it. Chance to do some good work. He doesn't just say go do it. He sends him a card from prison. Like, are you serious? Geronimo, the grandsister, Geronimo G. Jaga Pratt. Like, come on. Uh, and he wrote a poem, no less. He didn't even just write a, uh, you know, the, the good, good job, Johnny. You know, do some good work and write on, man. Writes him a poem, no less. Like, come on. Uh, let's see. Dog fight. Uh, it's... You start to get some of these psychiatrists uh, who, you know, testify that, hey, maybe this guy is not some so-called mad dog killer. And, you know, looking at everything that he's been through, like, hey, seems kind of well adjusted. Uh, you also uh, talk about some of the prison staff who were willing to be favorable to Geronimo Pratt, that they were punished, uh, whether it was not getting promotions, being demoted, fired, that sort of thing. Uh <laughs> If you are a white person, you cannot be confused about racism, white supremacy. You will get in trouble and or be punished by other white people. Uh, let's see. And they just continue to lie. You know, he's this Pratt guy is the next Nat Turner. He's going to kill us all. And we got to keep him in solitary confinement. Um Oh, and then their line, they get a special security squad member at the prison testified that he'd been seen a sergeant removing Pratt files from the office. He told me he was informed to get rid of it, destroy it. Uh, that, I mean, and then they can just come in. That happened with OJ Simpson. Oh, we lost this. Oh, we misplaced this. Oh, we don't know what happened to this. And to have that sort of thing happen all the time where it's consistently to the detriment of non-white defendants, just part of the power of white supremacy racism. We can lose things when we feel like losing things. Sometimes we find things. Uh, let's see. I don't know how they got some of these people to testify. The warden to say that he wasn't a security risk and was a leader. Even the folks to come forward and say that they had seen files destroyed and all. Like, I don't... Maybe having some white people on the defense team. I don't know, but that's uh, unusual. Uh, let's see. And they got uh, the former guard, Michael M., uh, to step forward now we got both sides of it here so we got non-white person so-called Asian person who steps forward to write this great letter and testify that you know Pratt saved me maybe saved my life uh, in this attack and he also did a double whammy uh, M uh, went and, and didn't make it real public that Pratt had done this out of fear that there might be prison re uh, retribution from the other prisoners like you know what are you doing we were trying to get him you sell out Uncle Tom and, and the other prisoners you know could have retaliated against Pratt so he didn't, you know, make a big deal there. And then to write and, and when it's time, hey, let's get him out of greater confinement and all this to say, hey, he did not attack me. He was there trying to stop it. Like, wow, that is not exactly uh, so-called Asian people being against black people, maybe. Uh, let's see next. Give maybe one more and then I'll check, see if other folks have commentary that they would like to share. There's an African-American uh, warden, newest deputy warden, excuse me, Reginald Pulley, who was later apparently promoted to warden. Uh, he's the person that comes and says, all right, we're going to move you to main population in greater confinement. I thought, wow, I don't know if that was a symbolic thing or, you know, if Mr. Pulley did have some sort of 
sympathy or willingness to hey let's do the right thing go ahead and move in the regular population he'll behave or you know whatever it is but black guard is the one who makes and then they even send black trustees to help him you know move along with all this process of relocating uh, let's see I thought it was great the uh, model that they showed of this cage where they kept Mr. Pratt no toilet uh, and just basically him being there caged there for all day long basically uh, I thought that was fantastic uh, and in my view at least all of the resistance white people not wanting to allow them into the prisons they don't want to give them the exact dimensions and all the rest they don't want to share this information they said that we don't want to share this information like we know this is cruel and unusual punishment like total violation of Nuremberg code and everything you know, ideals that we're supposed to be about justice and all that and <laughs> get in here no toilet we'll stuff you know a, a half a cup of water and a slice of bread we'll drag it across the floor probably <laughs> you could eat that or you know starve to death and, and, and urinate on yourself have a good evening let's see he gets moved out every time I hear Soledad I think of CNN longtime journalist cowbell uh they violated his rights uh, and so he gets moved along I thought it was important you can talk all the you know woo woo people say about like Geronimo Pratt talking about his celestinics uh, and him doing meditation and yoga and chanting and changing his diet remember he said he went on uh, all leaves all plants uh, plant based diet uh, and that's you know that new age nonsense Gus has probably been impacted he lived out in California too and all that west coast you know hooey like hey the jury said we didn't give out a million dollars in debt they said bucks in damages was because G was the healthiest person in the courtroom even after solitary confinement he was in better shape than the rest of us how is that possible he doesn't even get sunlight on a re- he doesn't even get water on a regular basis he doesn't even have a toilet like how is that possible and you live in california it's not like you're in a food desert or something where you you know only can eat bacon and french fries every day like you live in california like how is that possible maybe we should all he should have done uh celestinic videos maybe we should all be doing those but that is amazing uh, and again anybody you know who wants to talk about all that is nonsense just doing a little bit of yoga and some meditation and some breathing exercises and watching what you eat getting some chanting in like hey Geronimo G. Jaga Pratt uh, let's see incidentally he was talking about their defense team and the folks who volunteered to help like man this is a real stark contrast from the OJ Simpson defense team. Like they didn't talk about having any folks who were confused about their gender and, you know, males coming in wearing a dress and all the rest of it and helping out. Like you take help, you know, if you need constructive help, if you're getting constructive help, but it was way different for Orenthal James Simpson. They didn't have folks naked working in some dusty uh, basement trying to figure out, you know, what are we going to do? They said we killed, you know, Nicole Brown Simpson, Ryan Goldman. What are we going to do? Nah. Air conditioned space, Johnny Cochran's office. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> Talk about white power. Now, he talks about 
uh, Stuart Hanlon talks about it with his young girlfriend, Kathy, uh, that man, nobody came through this doing well, man, it was hard for a while. I slipped into cocaine, the trial lawyer's best friend. Now that makes it seem like this is a widespread thing. Marsha Clark, all these folks, hmm, I'll do a line or two here and there. Hmm. Anyway, at San Francisco, while I slipped into cocaine, the trial lawyer's best friend, at San Francisco parties, they gave it out like M&Ms, again, making it sound like this is a regular thing. I mean, they give out M&Ms like you get 50 of them at a time. It's not just the one M&M. It came between me and Kathy, young Kathy. I figured she was just being uptight and I was hip. It took me a while to find out how wrong I was. I would have liked a little bit more detail there, but I feel like on a regular basis for black people like that would be that would be justification for like the destruction of your entire life. Like it wouldn't be you slipped into cocaine. It would be you're some type of uh, vicious freeway Rick Ross. And, you know, you are the worst scourge of the universe and we need to put you behind jail and disbar you like I couldn't imagine Johnny Cochran Jr. being able to come out and just be so cavalier like oh yeah you know it was so rough you know being in the DA's office and having to prosecute all these folks unjustly and I had big loss in salary I sacrificed so much to do this work I slipped into a little cocaine for like what (laughs) get out of here I couldn't imagine that just being oh yeah you know it's tough we all do a little bit of experiment here in California maybe I'm wrong Uh, let's see some of the other folks uh, had Commentary, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, commentary to share, sir. Uh, greetings, to, uh, Gus, and greetings to everyone. Uh, yeah, uh, I've read the book before myself, but uh, it, it was, it's reminded me of, about a lot of things. Uh, first of all, uh, the term political prisoner. I don't know. I don't know if the Black Panther Party uh, originated that term, but uh, they certainly used it a lot uh, during the period of time when they uh, uh, when it was obvious that the uh, the Cointin Pro Pro were operating against them, uh, and uh, you know, so many so many people who uh, were getting uh, uh, captured uh were uh basically uh in situations similar to uh geronimo uh, and and solely because of their means to be able to communicate with the other uh uh inmates uh in a uh fav- in, in a favorable way that can uh at least get them uh get them interested in solving some of their own personal problems, as well as the problems of racism, white supremacy. Uh, and that was, a, of course, a real big concern. And, uh, you know, and, you know, and so what, what we're reading is, is reason, reasons on why they uh, wanted to uh, keep him uh, away from the population. Uh, also, yes, it, it's, it's, uh, logical to think that if you're going to go through those that eight years of suffering, uh, uh, that in order to 
in order to balance that that suffering off, then you you know basically have a, a health lead a healthy as healthy as possible anyway uh, lifestyle uh, based on doing some things that are logical and uh, that perhaps can be a means to be able to survive through the process. A, a, a flash in my mind did come up though when they. Uh, uh, when the when the, uh, the 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 suit uh, was successful, uh, and then he started getting all all of this uh, attention from the inmates, uh, as well as uh, the nice the nice things, you know. And I'm and I'm talking about greater confinement, so it's kind of like illogical to say anything's nice inside greater confinement, but nevertheless, different from what he had been used to, that that he may get comfortable. <laughs> But uh, as we can, as we have read, uh, he still stayed on point uh, as far as you know. Hey, I, I, I don't, I don't need all of that extra, extra attention that I'm getting from you guys, uh, and uh, you know that sort of thing. And that, that, that I think that's one way on how he was able to, to mentally get himself through all of that time that he was doing in prison because he. He basically stayed uh, mentally and best as he could physically in, in, uh, in a uh, constructive uh, way while he was while he was there. And you know, I, I and and I have to say it was some level of patience that was involved too, because you know, whew, uh, that that is very trying to have to go through what he went through. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Talk about patience, man. <laughs> uh, whew. Uh, I'm not a biblical person. They talk about Job and the lion's den, I think. Like, wow. <laughs> I mean, whew. <laughs> like, uh, anywho, let's see. Other folks uh, who do- ooh, 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 messed that up, sorry. Uh, other folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up if you have commentary to share. Line should be open. Mm-mm-mm taking a minute almost messed up switchboard sorry all right other folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, can i be heard yes sir i um i just have one question um i don't have the book with me i, I was just listening to it and i didn't understand when he said that um that uh that they had shanghai the uh tennis court murder so I don't understand what does that mean like what does Shanghai have to do with that and that's it let me make sure I get the correct page that might be a term with some uh, racial implications I know they generally uh, use it in uh, to mean like somebody has taken over uh, something someone has came in and, and kind of someone uh, maybe in an unjust or incorrect manner uh, has taken over uh, a function or a form. Do you know the exact page? I think I can find it. But if you got the page right off, right off hand in front of you, that would be great. If not, don't worry about it. I got it. Never mind. Thank you. Thank you for looking. If you try. All right. So it's on 234. The sentence is other redacted files suggested a close liaison between Cointel Pro and the LAPD, which had Shanghai, the tennis court murder case from the from Santa Monica detectives. So that's the general way that I've seen that term used, uh, meaning that uh, the LAPD, uh, well, I guess it might be Cointel Pro and LAPD 
jointly uh, Shanghai. So they took over the tennis court murder case from Santa Monica detectives. So that would mean the Santa Monica detectives, it would normally be their jurisdiction, but we already have our Virginia or not uh, LAPD Cointel pro. They have their own agenda. So they come in and maybe nefariously say, no, this is our jurisdiction. We're going to prosecute this case. Not you all. That would be, and that would fit the, I have to get the exact definition uh, that they give, but that fits the exact way that I'm accustomed to that term being used. Some sort of generally incorrect uh, takeover. Uh, of an event or taking charge uh, or or dominating, bogarting an event or someone who's supposed to be in charge. Let's see. The dictionary definition, verb, for someone to join a ship lacking a full crew. That's one. That's not what we're talking about. To coerce or trick someone into a place or position or into doing something. That fits closer. To force, coerce, trick your mm. way into authority, power, domination over another person. That's the way that I've generally seen the term used. But I think there's like a racial component to this. Uh, so I guess it goes back to shipping. I guess that's the etymology. It goes back. He talked Geronimo Pratt, I guess, did this in prison. The etymology of the word goes back to shipping, it looks like. Shanghai or crimping, C-R-I-M-P-I-N-G is the practice of kidnapping people to serve as sailors by coercive Whoa. techniques such as trickery, intimidation, or violence. Those engaged in this form of kidnapping were known as crimps. The related term press gang refers specifically to impressment practices in Great Britain's Royal Navy. That is amazing. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Still learning. Still learning. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> For sure. Thank you. That's it. See, those words that pop up in the book, don't just assume that you know. That's how you can really get everything, learn as much as possible uh, while going through these books. Shanghai, I'm still learning. Wow. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with the hand up, uh, we missed totally. Or, yeah, just other folks if you have commentary. Do we miss anybody? Everybody got in their commentary? Okay. I'll continue with, I had a few more notes and then we can get to the second audio segment. Let's see. I lost my place a little bit. I think I was getting close to the chapter where Mr. Pratt gets back to the main line. He talks about all this attention that he gets from uh, the other black inmates and even uh, some of the other non-white inmates. Uh, You know, the Mexicans said, hey, you know, we're cool and you know, we respect what you've done. And they said specifically him not being a snitch, 10 stops, not uh, doing the homosexual thing. Hom- uh, anal, the original anal retentives, there's so much of the man not and uh, the homoerotic component, delectable Negro uh, throughout uh, this text. Uh, and in a very sadistic manner, these guards are uh, getting some sort of gratification, sexual, sexual gratification, say it correctly, sexual gratification for the guards, whether it's the strip searches and anal cavity searches and having uh, prisoners like train wreck, sodomized other inmates. There's so much homoeroticism. I mean, this might be this is, I'm sure, the sanitized version of, you know, what this process is. Anyway, he talks about they had respect. We appreciate you didn't do all that. 
doing your celestinics, trying to take care of yourself as best you can. And he gets all the suspect. They're coming to hook up his cell and bringing him specially prepared meals, catered food, if you will, every day. And, you know, he's got a library and a desk. And I mean, hey, right on, I guess, if you black self-respect, black self-respect, I guess, you know, trying to do something to work against racism, white supremacy. Um, he talks about, let's see. mainland okay got back to my notes so he talks about he's you know what in the world i've been in solitary confinement uh this whole time and now i get here and let's start with the food specifically so they gave detail right piece of bread and they would like cut a plastic bottle in half and put like he said four inches of water in that you know and then slide that on the ground to him or whatever that's what he had been eating uh off of a paper plate you eat with your hands like let me read what he said he says uh he made his first visit to the mess hall in a time warp. I hadn't seen a real dish or eaten with a metal spoon for eight years. Even just think about that. In the hole, you eat off paper plates with your fingers or a soft plastic spoon that you can't turn into a shank. Can you imagine that for eight years? Every meal, either you eat with your hands or a plastic spoon paper plate not we're not even getting it to the you know it's not like you're eating filet mignon on this paper plate uh with your plastic spoon or with your hands i mean garbage gruel literally if that might be lucky to get gruel that's what you're eating for eight years with your hands on a paper plate maybe a plastic spoon then he continues the uh black we got black Muslim security twice now they came and did security for Johnny Cochran at the end of the OJ Simpson trial and then they pop up again fruit of Islam to escort Geronimo G. Pratt when he makes it back to general population uh, which he said no I'm good I'm good I don't need it thank you all everything's great so he, he goes in to eat they got chairs tablespoons all the rest of it and he said it looked and tasted like Howard Johnson's I think Howard Johnson's is out of business didn't they go out of business maybe I'm wrong about that let's see uh and the Mexicans, they said he's cool. Uh, let's see. And then they, they hook up his, his cell. He gets, you know, all this uh, great food. Then he gets carpeting and he gets a desk, like I said. He gets a refrigerator. Like, hook it up, you know, hook up your cell uh, as best we can make it uh, for the time that you have to be here to make it as comfortable as possible. Uh, and then the LA Times, you know, LA Times messes all that up doing their expose on how all these coddled prisoners. So we, now we got to go back to, you know, the worst which the worst of it for them in this context is still better than what he had in solitary confinement with no toilet uh which he even says uh then it continues he says uh the wardens bringing in all the drugs i thought was so important uh another reason of why i say sobriety would be best i don't think he talks about how the wardens uh the jailers are so outnumbered by the prisoners if all of these non-white people were sober in prison. Geronimo Pratty said he didn't do any of it. He said he would do a little weed every now and then to relax, and that was it. Even the alcohol, he said, matter of fact, he said the alcohol was the most dangerous thing, which I'm not surprised about at all. Uh, but sobriety would be best. Let me get my brain computer together. I mean, in prison, you would think that would be the most difficult environment to obtain narcotics and contraband. How in the world is that you got all of this stuff <laughs> like, whoa, wait a minute now. Come on. Come on. Maybe you want me 
to do this so I can lose my mind and be on all this other stuff and it can be easy for you to dominate and control me. Hmm. Uh, he studied Mr. Fuller, I think would have a big smile, or at least that is the constructive thing to do. If you're going to be in greater confinement, study, try to learn something, use your time in a constructive manner. Well, we just, he did exactly what we just did. I don't know what this word Shanghai means. Let me look it up. Matter of fact, let me study the anthropology of this term so I can really get an understanding. He studied anthropology, geology, behavioral science, chemistry, philosophy. What I thought was important about this was he's in prison. He said he had access to books and subjects they didn't teach at Morgan City Colored High. I could be a total moron. I know they have, you know, like college programs and what have you where you can get like Harvard courses and depending on which institution that you're at. But I know they have that. I'm aware. But I'm just saying, I don't think it should be that the high school or put it this way. I don't think the prison should have better academic resources than the high school. I don't know what the white high school is like uh, on the other side of across the tracks in Louisiana where uh, Geronimo Pratt grew up. I would love to know. I would, in fact, I would take that wager right now that they did not have a shabby library that had no subjects on anthropology or uh, geology or these other subjects that he couldn't access at the colored high school, how they restrict access to information. That was a big part of why Brown v. Board of Education and all that. Probably at the the exact time that he was going to school, big 1950s and all that. Uh, But I just found that appalling. Um, I I could be totally wrong. Like I said, I know some prisons, Shawshank Redemption, they can hook a library up. You can get some amazing courses and learn. Bravo. They should have more of that. I'm just saying a high school that is not in greater confinement for children who have not been convicted of any crimes should not have shabbier academic resources. And I don't think they would have, except this is a so-called colored high school that we're talking about. Anyway. And we already talked about the anti-blackness and black bigots. Whoopee. Uh, Going off next audio segment. Did we miss anybody? Anything else folks need to get in before we shove off? This is a quote. Didn't miss anybody. Groovy. If you have additional thoughts, just write a note. We should have ample time to continue the discussion. Uh, So we are picking up find the rats uh jack olson last man standing the tragedy and triumph of geronimo Gijaga pratt context of white supremacy audio segment number two chapter 36 judge parker redux in november 1979 superior court judge kathleen parker found herself looking down at the faces of Elmer Gerard Pratt and Stuart Douglas Hanlon and not enjoying the view. Seven years had passed since she'd sentenced Pratt to life imprisonment. In his habeas corpus action, she wasn't being asked to rule on guilt or innocence, but on whether there was sufficient cause for an evidentiary hearing at which Pratt could attempt to prove that he'd been tried unfairly. 
Since Parker had presided at the proceedings in question, she was sitting in judgment on herself. In court, she did little to conceal her sentiments. When Hanlon suggested that the original trial had been close, as shown by the jury's ten days of deliberation, Parker broke in and said, I think maybe I can shorten this. I do not agree with the defense. This was a weak case. Now, proceed from there. The judge complained that she'd been swamped with letters attempting to coerce her into favoring Pratt and that some two dozen prominent groups and citizens, including California Assembly members Willie Brown, Maxine Waters, and Gwen Moore, seven preachers, a rabbi, and several labor leaders had filed as MSC Curie. Forty of the letters she pointed out were identically worded, bore out-of-town postmarks, and appeared to be the result of a coordinated pressure campaign. She declined comment on Hanlon's suggestion that it was unfair to hold the enthusiasm of Pratt's backers against his client. In his arguments for an evidentiary hearing, Hanlon charged that Pratt's constitutional rights had been thrice violated by Julius Butler's perjury in denying his role as an informer, by the planting of spies in the defense environs, and by Richard Kalustian's withholding of evidence. In response, Kalustian took his usual firm stance. After 16 years of service to the DA's office, Johnny Cochran's old classmate had risen to the rank of head deputy and was believed to be in line for a judgeship. In a declaration filed with the court, he denied that he'd known of any connections between the FBI and Julius Butler at the time of the trial. I was not contacted by the FBI, nor did I contact the FBI regarding this case or the Black Panther Party. No information was supplied to me by the FBI concerning this case. I was unaware of the FBI's Pro program during this period of time, and I believe did not know anything about it until reading about it in the newspapers. During the trial and continuing to this day, I have had no reason to believe Julius Butler ever was an informant for any agency. Geronimo Pratt's nemesis also denied that he'd known of the existence of informers in the defense camp until he was advised by the FBI long after Pratt was sent to prison. He confirmed that his star witness had fared well in the interim and admitted that he, Kalustian, had eventually asked the court to reduce Julius Butler's convictions in the Ollie Taylor assault case to misdemeanors. For several reasons, including the fact that Butler was no longer a Black Panther, appeared to have stabilized his life and had assisted law enforcement by testifying in the murder trial. With the hearing in progress, the FBI coughed up another surprising tidbit. Wiretap transcripts showed that Panther leaders Bobby Seale and or Kathleen Cleaver had picked up some unknown persons at the Oakland airport on the exact day of the tennis court murder and that Geronimo Pratt 
was spotted in Oakland two days later. Even more surprising was a positive confirmation of FBI Director William Webster's previous suggestion that a Cointelpro agent had infiltrated the Pratt legal defense team. Indeed, the mole had taken part in four of the team's strategy sessions. Footnote 53. Later, the FBI amended its admission. It had had two informants in the defense camp. End of footnote. Wait till the judge hears this, Hanlon said. It's absolute grounds for a new trial. I could cite a hundred cases. Kathleen Parker listened impassively as Hanlon read the FBI revelations and some of the church committee's findings about Cointelpro. He reminded her that Director Webster, himself a former federal appeals judge, had declared that Pratt deserved a new trial, if it could be shown that Butler was an informant. When Hanlon attempted to cast doubt on one of the FBI's claims, the judge appeared shocked. But Mr. Hanlon, she declared, it's the FBI. After four days of courtroom acrimony, Parker issued her ruling. She admonished the Pratt lawyers for trying to step from one point to another by speculation. An evidentiary hearing would serve no useful purpose since she didn't see sufficient evidence that Mr. Pratt was framed and that he did not have a fair trial. The prisoner would be returned to San Quentin. Sitting at the petitioner's table, Geronimo rocked back in his chair and shut his eyes. Hanlon felt polaxed, confused, and then angry. Every member of the Pratt team had agreed that their three constitutional claims were strong, and Kathleen Parker had discounted them like a student judge at a moot court. Hanlon stood up and looked directly at the judge. Your Honor, he said, selecting his words carefully. This case has been, since its inception, a cover-up. What the court has just said has implicated itself in this cover-up. The court is the only thing in the system of law. Loud applause interrupted. As the judge grabbed her gavel, Hanlon said, The court is the only thing in this system of law that separates the prosecution, the state, from framing people. It is what separated Watergate from having to become more of a national disgrace than it was, and people turned to the courts to keep the government in line. He looked at Geronimo and fought for composure. And this court, he went on, this court, this court has said we will not deal with it. We will side with the state. He looked straight at the judge. And that makes this court part of the cover-up. 
It was a brazen accusation to make to a judge's face. He knew he was risking a contempt citation and figured it was worth it. Her honor walked off the bench without comment. In the corridor, an irate Hanlon told a reporter they ought to rename this place the Hall of Injustice. Judge Parker is a nice old lady, but she's intimidated by the FBI. We gave her evidence, and she called it speculation. We gave her facts, and she called them wishful thinking. We'll see what the appellate court thinks of her reasoning. Johnny Cochran, sidelined by his official job in Los Angeles, offered solace on the phone. Stu, he said, I don't think it would have mattered what you did in court. Somebody else is calling the shots. My bet is it's the FBI. I hate all this ex parte stuff. Footnote 54. Essentially, information that is communicated to judges privately and not shared with opposing attorneys or included in the court record. End of footnote. It's terrible. It could destroy our justice system. Hanlon said, Our system was destroyed a long time ago, Johnny. The two lawyers had never agreed on the subject. Cochran accepted the system and tried to work within it. Hanlon felt that the system was corrupt and attempted to expose it. Both attorneys won most of their cases achieving the same goal with different approaches. Cochran ignored Hanlon's pessimism and asked how soon he planned to file an appeal. Hanlon said he was working on it. Just hope they assign Bernie Jefferson, Cochran said. He's the man. Hanlon agreed. Justice Bernard Jefferson of California's 2nd District Court of Appeal was a nationally respected African-American jurist. His scholarly decisions had influenced racial jurisprudence and many felt that he would be sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court if conservatives weren't in power in Washington. Keep me informed, Stu, Cochran was saying. I wish I could jump in and help out. But you know the rules. A few days later, Cochran risked his prestigious new role as assistant district attorney by writing a letter to the California Community Release Board asserting his belief that Geronimo Pratt was innocent. His boss, D.A. John Vandekamp, slapped Cochran on the wrist in a follow-up letter to the parole board. It is disconcerting to me that apparently competent professionals are considering the possibility of Mr. Pratt's innocence. I wish to make it clear that this office does not concur in Mr. Cochran's personal views in this matter. On the contrary, we are of the firm belief that Mr. Pratt should not be released. At a rancorous session in the DA's sanctum, Vandekamp accused Cochran of creating problems. Cochran told him, you can take this job and shove it. 
I know this man is innocent. Vandekamp said he was entitled to his opinion. You're darned right I am, Cochran said. It's what I said before I took this job. It's what I'm saying now, and it's what I'll be saying long after I'm gone. Sometime later, Cochran arrived at his office to find his rare fire eel dead on the floor. The lid of the fish tank was firmly in place. He couldn't jump out by himself, Cochran told a colleague. I did the right thing, so somebody killed my fire eel. He wasn't just another pet. We had a friendship. Later, he wrote, there was a lot of snickering around the office about Cochran's dead eel. I never saw the joke, but I got the point. Context of white supremacy. So we will be here tomorrow neutralizing workplace racism. One of the things, suggestions I have offered for years do not have anything in your work area except the things that you need to do your job. Nothing extra, no candy dishes, uh, no pictures of your family, uh, no cute, you know, office toys, no Nerf basketball hoops, no fire eels. Nothing but the items you need to complete your work. There is a reason for that. The office shenanigans, as they will call them, uh, they are boundless. I mean, it's just <laughs> that's on the low end of the spectrum. Like it can be all over the place. You know, you never know what can happen. Urinating in your beverage and all kinds of things. So neutralizing workplace racism is tomorrow. But another sad reminder, I am vegan, proud vegan. Been so for three years now. Not that I'm <laughs> trying to keep track on that, but uh, long time vegan. Love it. Plant based uh, eater protect the animals and such you know I'm not about harming the fire eels either but the greater point uh, the shenanigans and office hijinks office abuse woo, all over the place and especially once you start broadcasting your personal and political views on things like oh yeah we talk about that too yeah, tomorrow 8pm Eastern 5pm Pacific uh, other folks who wrote in let's see where I get to the rest of the commentary from our investor and then we can check see if other folks uh, had any written commentary as well until justice at gmail.com find the rats number one but under the definition in the FBI manual the beautician would merely be a probationary informant someone who is being cultivated as an informant the manipulation of definitions by racists affords an advantage which seems so integral to maintaining the global system of white supremacy racism absolutely incidentally do y'all remember at the beginning of the program played the audio segment Kenneth O'Reilly and he talked about black people are treated like garbage so all of their their suspect their loyalties are suspect he said that they would have informants just around black people period I mean yeah of course you know Muhammad Ali or Minister Malcolm X or Geronimo Pratt yeah 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 but just black people in general he said barbershops we want to get barbershop informants Julio Butler 
reputation. I thought that was so important. He mentioned that specifically in his book. And he said on the program, we want people who work at barbershops, come on in and give us all the gossip. And we'll write all that and give it to <sighs> racial matters. The FBI secret file on black America, 1960 to 1972. He was on the program in April, 2009. Uh, number two, Hanlon was quiet for a moment, then said all that bullshit about the letter was to keep the snitch jacket off Julio. They didn't want him to testify as an FBI informer. So the FBI knew what was in the letter all along because they made him write it. The meticulousness of these people in practicing racism, white supremacy is astounding. Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, Let's see. Judge Parker Redux. Number one, Parker issued her ruling regarding parole of Pratt the prisoner would be returned to San Quentin. Kathleen Parker had discounted them like a student judge with a moot court. The role and power of racist woman cannot be ignored or underestimated. Absolutely. Do so at your own peril. Number two, Cochran risked his prestigious new role as assistant DA by writing a letter to the California Release Board asserting Geronimo Pratt's innocence. His boss, D.A. John Vandekamp, slapped Cochran on the wrist in a follow-up letter. Cochran arrived at his office to find his rare fire eel dead on the floor. Racist man may have been sending Mr. Mr. Cochran a message about his own safety. Apparently he got lots of those messages being threatened directly uh, by enforcement officers because he was driving too nice of a car in a white neighborhood and then threatened around the O.J. Simpson case and then threatened around this case like a whole life uh, of being threatened and mistreated and terrorized uh, and trying to fight against all of that. Johnny L. Cochran Jr. Much obliged. Uh, Let's see again other folks if you have uh, commentary observations feel free uh, until justice at gmail.com we will nab your hand uh, let's see the folks who dialed in star six one if you have thoughts observations commentary the number again is seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate, if you didn't get to share, don't wait till the last minute. Go ahead and get a hand up. Uh, folks who have commentary to share, retired firefighter Henry in Chicago, uh, be in Santa Rosa, feel free. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings again. Uh, yeah, I, I thought for a second there I was uh, back at a fire station <laughs> on what happened to Mr. Cochran's uh, eel. I didn't know people kept pets such as that. Uh, it reminded me of a, uh, a, uh, 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 I can't remember the type of dog that's, that's synonymous with uh, fire stations, but uh, they, uh, uh, this one particular fire station had one of them uh, uh, up until he snapped at a chief <laughs> and, and they got rid of him. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, do not uh, carry any home-like uh, or any uh, self-description 
type of items uh, to your workplace. Uh, you want to keep a level of blandness about your about yourself, uh, and uh, so you can get through the day and be uh, the most efficient worker that you possibly can be. I I learned that early uh, myself uh, with the fire department. Uh, I was just thinking about the uh, the the report that stated that. Uh, the differences between uh, Mr. Cochran and Mr. Hamlin. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. Mr. Hamlin is a, a white male, correct? Yeah, well, he gets consistently described as having his Jufro. So I'd say this is someone <laughs> who could be classified as white. He might say he's so-called Jew. Okay. Sus- racist suspect. We can go with that at least. Racist suspect. Yeah, I, I, and and I, I was I was just kind of like listening to the differences between the two, and I, I said to myself, well, the the white person can afford to be on either side and get something constructive out of it. That's the advantage of uh, under the system of racial white supremacy and being a white person that you can you can you can. Uh, identify that the system is crooked, you know, and uh, and then at, at the same time you can you can uh, at your convenience uh, work within the system itself. Uh, and I can I can even understand Mr. Cochran's position because uh, non-white people, especially non-white people who are racially classified as black, and especially non-white people who are racially classified as black that are, that are black males are very limited on on uh, success in any of, all, any of all of the nine areas of activity uh, from that standpoint. And I, I certainly uh, 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 have a great deal of uh, likeness for uh, Mr. Cochran and his uh, professional position and uh, how uh, determined that he is. And certainly it needs to be more, even today, of attorneys uh, who are like him, uh, had the like-mindedness of him, uh, you know, and and a black person similar to that in all of the the different professions uh, uh, that's similar, you know, like Dr. Welsing as a physician and the extra the ex, she didn't just stay into the lane of of uh, what she was trained. She fitted her training into into uh, attempting to solve the problem of racist white supremacy. And I think Mr. Cochran had that those intents also. Uh, so uh, those are some of the things that I was thinking about in listening to this this last uh, uh, reading. And uh, I would stop there. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, indeed. Firehouse overtones with the murdered fire eel. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Can I be heard? Henry in Chicago. Yes, sir. All right. Um, I was kind of snickering on uh, page 
252 on uh, Hanlon's uh, response to Kalustin's remarks in regards to the parole hearing and him using the word biased against Kalustin. I know how much you love that word, Gus. Um, I was also, uh, you know, reading the next, uh, following along the next chapter with uh, Judge Parker. Uh, despite all this evidence that Hanlon has presented uh, to the judge uh, trying to force a retrial, um, you know, the judge basically, uh, I think one of the uh, emailers had said it best that the system of white supremacy cannot uh, be effective without white women. And also, too, she basically, you know, told them, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm, uh, it's right because I'm white. I'm white because I say so. So it does not matter how much evidence you put in front of me. I will not rehear this case. So, uh, that's the, uh, that's the system. Um, <laughs> yeah. Cochran with an eel <laughs> at his job. I guess, you know what? Uh, and I agree. I don't think you should be putting up uh, pictures and all this other kind of crazy stuff at your, office but you know we you know we being confused people in the system you know i guess uh cochran making the equivalent of today two hundred thousand dollars a year even though he took a, a huge pay cut you know i guess he could afford to buy one uh you know previously before he joined the da's office he was making to an equivalent of what it today is 1.2 million dollars so uh i guess he has the money to buy one and i guess he did that so and because um, I think in the last uh, in the last uh, uh, record, well, the last session that uh, we were talking about in regards to why a prison has more books than uh, a school or a high school, uh, <clears throat> I think uh, it may have been on your program or some other program that I, I was listening to where um, a couple of years ago uh, the prisons. Or particularly here in Illinois, was removing books from uh, the prisons and putting in new TVs. So I can understand, like, you know, back in those days, like in the 70s, that, you know, prisons would, you know, would, would, uh, would have more books. Because I think uh, in the report they were talking about how books were, you know, were always being donated to prison. But, you know, like, Nobody hardly donates books to schools, especially high schools. I mean, this is what, you know, white people think of education, especially education in, in, in black schools. But, you know, uh, as much as you say about uh, them not caring about children, you know, that's, you know, that goes along the line of white people not caring about any child, uh, including white children. So, uh, but, you know. Uh, that's, uh, that's all I had on me in my line. Much obliged. Henry in Chicago. Now, Dr. Welsing, known for saying reading more important than watching television. He says that they're taking the books out with the TVs in the prisons, like, uh, exact opposite. And I've heard that before. Um, when I lived in Atlanta, they would, chronically talk about overcrowdings uh, in the prison system in and around the Atlanta area and having 
you know, three, four, like unsafe conditions, like not just, wow, he stuffed a lot of black people in here, but like, this is unsafe, like, whoa. And uh, they said, we are not getting, they were looking at, you know, how can we cut costs? What can be done? Uh, they said, hey, how about we get rid of television? And that is not even a starting point. We are not getting rid of the televisions. <laughs> All righty. Like, uh, got to watch the Falcons and keep folks confused. But uh, definitions and entertainment components to how all of this operates and just again where they direct your attention it was television drugs probably go a long way to keep folks you know distracted uh did oh, I mean that's a good point too about difference in time being the 1970s I mean hey you didn't have you know Netflix and 8 billion uh channels that you could watch on your phone at your convenience uh you know a lot more people read a little bit back then uh, let's see. Other folks, did we miss anybody? Folks have commentary to share? Soon, folks are good. Double check, make sure while we're getting to the last portion here. Uh, I think this this uh, notion we just had in the last chapter, Judge Kathleen Parker, white woman, where you will have white people who participated in some component right of this case or they have some sort of vested interest uh Kalustian and Parker and these folks they are not going to come back and adjudicate this later and say you know what we did mess over old Pratt we we were wrong mea culpa you know we we our fault our fault we we will do but we'll do better we'll make a dote I mean that's not going to happen and that's not what happened they just stuck to the same line for 27 years basically you know this is a no count killer and he did it and there was no malfeasance and it doesn't matter whether Julio Butler is an informant and all this you know hogwash uh, he's a no count killer Uh, that was kind of the position through and through and you'll see that quite a bit uh, in the system of white supremacy where white people practice racism and as I stated before we were talking about uh, the bigots right in the league which I had not heard either um Klegal, I had not heard either, uh, that sometimes it'll be the Klegal member will also, or the clan Klegal will also be the sheriff, where they get to go and terrorize, and then when it's, oh my goodness, someone is hunger nigra and burn the whole house down, call the sheriff, oh yes, yes, I will adjudicate and figure out what happened, I mean, you're not going to be, yes, yes, we came and terrorized and lynched in there, that's not going to happen. Kalustian and the gang and I was like, yeah our fault you know we cheated the FBI came in and gave us the bogus photographs so we could do that we had cheats on the team we knew what you had they're not going to do that they didn't do that at any point in the 25 year of this trial uh, let's see she dismissed them like children I think one of our callers already pointed that out uh, Kathleen Parker I'm a white woman this is 1970 this is not like Me Too era and Ruth Bader Ginsburg inspired me to be this is way before all that and you got a white eh, hush all that up get out of here I don't believe that that's nonsense you all are just doing a lot of speculating and hooey get on out of here like a white woman in charge uh, let's see And the, this uh, consistently, this will come up, I guess, as we continue to go along, because uh, they'll get more information as the story kind of moves along. We get into the 80s and 90s and all. But them getting information that the FBI had uh, wiretaps of Pratt potentially being in Oakland at the time of the murders where we know absolutely we're lying. This is not something where we have some doubts or whatever the case. We just get to totally make 
things up as we go. Even if we're making this up and we could kill you, have you in the death penalty. Hey, that's what racism, white supremacy is deception. We just get to lie and lie and lie and lie deliberately, willfully lie like all the time. Uh, let's see. I just, I mentioned Ollie table for young uh, teenage black person getting beat up anti-blackness, uh, not by a so-called Korean person either. I don't believe, The chapter finding the oh and Johnny Cochran speaking up. Make sure I get that in as well. I now also for neutralizing workplace racism. I say all the time a week like this or a, a 15 month period like this. Uh, I said consistently, I don't think it's a good idea. You don't want to be on your job uh, spouting off about what you think about the Derek Chauvin trial or any of these other cases. Uh, it's not a good time you know, to come and just this is not your political forum. Uh, you could end up with your eel being murdered or they urinated in your chair or whatever else Um, Mr. Cochran like wow to step in from his position I'm not just doing this as an employee at the Chick-fil-A you know or the Amazon warehouse or Uber driver I'm doing this as an assistant assistant district attorney LA County prosecuting office saying that Geronimo Pratt is innocent and I know he is and I, I mean like wow at this period in time too, like we're in the midst of uh, Patty Hearst and not that far removed from Watts. It's not like they've had tons of black people in this position anyway. Uh, I mean, wow, that is, and, and, and to be so codified because I would say, Ooh, do not do that. Like, wow, that's, that's the sort of thing I remind people on Fridays. Like, Hey, that's the type of thing. Are you comfortable with your boss, your supervisor, all of your coworkers knowing about this, like today, tomorrow, next week, next year, you're comfortable with that. Mr. Cochran said, you take this job and shove it. <laughs> okay. All right. Then. Let it VGQ. Let it rot. Now it's easier to make that decision. If you've been making $300,000 a year before you come to this little ragtag job for 50,000 a year, you can scroll away some money and whatever you want to fire me. <laughs> go back to my private practice no pro- where I can go back to making $300,000 a year and wait on my payday with OJ Simpson and all no problem you can do that and be a little bit more uh, assertive with your counter racist code but I would say for the general population probably don't want to be out broadcasting your views about which inmates you think are innocent and Mr. Chauvin should get life like just keep all that to yourself even with other non-white people uh, let's see. It's kind of what, like, I don't know how wild I would be about proceed. I mean, I guess having hope, right. Them, them thinking that they were going to be able to make a little bit more progress with judge Parker, where Ge- uh, Geronimo is going to end with a shocky and saying, Hey, let's have a child. I'm going back to Louisiana and that sort of thing. Like, I don't know if I could have been that optimistic. I mean, they had, I guess, a lot of great information. He's confident in his uh, attorneys and what have you. He didn't commit this crime. So, I mean, certainly that's a reason to be confident that you're going to be released. But I would not or I just would have been real hesitant, real, real hesitant about wanting to do that while I'm still here because white people are all about deceptions and such. Uh, They mentioned the uh, Sirhan Sirhan murder case uh, and saying that Dwayne Wolfer, the forensic witness who did all the testing said oh yeah this is Pratt's gun he did it the shell casings match blah 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 we talked about they didn't have enough money for the defense team to have 
qualified investigators go back and refute all this and ask more questions that they just didn't have the resources they didn't have OJ Simpson money to do all of that uh, and so they find that this guy hey he's he's made a lot of errors his reputation is not even that good he could have been making stuff up here they said that he made a lot of gross uh, was accused of gross incompetence he resigned after being in, under investigation for gross incompetence in the Sirhan Sirhan murder case uh, Sirhan Sirhan uh, is the alleged uh, gunman uh, in the assassination of Robert Kennedy, uh, which is 1968, memory's not bad, uh, summer, I believe, 1968, a few months after the assassination of Dr. King, uh, widely disputed, lots of controversy about what actually happened, how many shooters, the type of case that you would want somebody who is super competent to be involved in the forensic autopsy, and apparently that didn't happen. I think we talked about this case with uh, John Potash too, his second time around drugs as weapons against us connected to racism, white supremacy, that assassination too, even though Robert Kennedy approved some of these Quinto pro activities that we're talking about. That's in Kenneth O'Reilly's books, Nixon's piano and racial matters. Uh, you know, people can talk about Robert Kennedy and he should have been president and he was great when he was attorney general and all that Robert Kennedy approved some of the Cointel pro activities that Hoover and his lackeys at the FBI carried out. So racist man, racist woman, racist child, Robert Kennedy at all. Uh, let's see. the insurance letter great point the FBI uh, kind of cultivating all of this to begin with uh, the FBI now they can distance now they got their conviction they can distance themselves from Julio Butler and oh we don't know about this guy we can't vouch for him and then he said well with their line I'm just a beauty shop beautician I just work here at the beauty shop what are they talking about I'm an upstanding citizen let's see Mm-mm-mm-mm. just in the continued insistence where white people droves of white people can continue to come out just lying even with the prison antics that oh he was going to kidnap Patty Hearst and oh he was going to kidnap all of our children and oh this guy's a mad dog he's the worst fiend ever he's going to start riots where they can just what are you talking about he's been in solitary confinement like what prison riot are you talking about that he's starting up or you know he's galvanized the, the masses of black people to go kill all the Mexicans in the print like what are you talking about just to be able to make up and that just seems to be a core part of what it means to be white as it relates to how you deal with non-white people we can lie falsely accuse them all the time who's going to believe them and other white people will come and cosign on your false allegations all the time apparently uh, let's see Kalustian, uh Cochran's homie at the end. And again, that's not something, I mean, he shouldn't be disbarred for all of this. Like you knew Richard Kalustian, they had, you know, spies, whatever you want to call them, moles for the defense team so that we can uh, get all of this illicit information and plan accordingly. Like, shouldn't you be disbarred for that? Ethics. They talk about that ethics, morality, all of that nonsense in a system of white supremacy. Any other commentary folks want to get in before we wrap things up? Miss anybody? Of 
Corcoran. Lots of uh, material. There are a number of books and even documentaries. I was almost going to play. Uh, there's a documentary, the FBI's war against black America. And maybe I'll sound clip it for next week. But Geronimo Pratt is kind of uh, dispersed throughout this and older uh, documentary so he was still in greater confinement at the time it was made uh, but kind of the last portion of it kind of focuses on him they have uh, Wes Swearingen who is a white man he's a former guest on the cows uh, he wrote uh, the book uh, an, F- uh, an agent's expose uh, and he worked for the FBI during the time of Cointel Pro and he talks about a lot of the attitudes that people had and ways that they carried out these programs spying on people setting up assassinations and the rest of that uh, we talked about some of this when he was on the program back in 2009 after months after Kenneth O'Reilly was on the program uh, but he is in the document of the FBI's war on black America as is Geronimo Pratt uh, and a number of other folks giving just detailed information, not just about the Pratt case, but the Black Panthers in general, black people uh, in general. As Kenneth O'Reilly said, you didn't have to be, you know, a Stokely Carmichael or somebody out with a megaphone and talking all this down with you. You didn't have to be that at all. Just a regular black person going to the beauty parlor. That would be enough. We might want to be interested in what are you doing? What are you up to? Who are your friends? Who are you hanging out with? You're a nigger. Your loyalties are suspect. We know we treat you like garbage, so we got to watch you. Be here tomorrow for neutralizing workplace racism. Same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Compensatory call in Saturday. 8 p.m. or excuse me, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, We are over the halfway point with this book, so we are getting towards the uh, home stretch uh, trying to look at other books as I said uh, Elliot Roger his manifesto might check that one out after this is done I did catch the uh, Richard Wright book as well his newly released book uh, which is all about racism white supremacy as I believe all of his literature is but kind of already looking for other things to read as well but Something to think about as uh, we keep it moving forward. We still have a ways to go before Mr. Pratt is freed in this text. So still moving. Uh, Everybody good? Awesome. Sobriety would be. Oh, did I miss someone? It's a little too quick on the gun. I was too quick on the gun. Be in Santa Rosa. Yeah, um, I was just trying to figure out um, a good place to uh, access you guys' archives. Uh, let, well, if you want, like, the Kenneth O'Reilly, that's so old. Um, it's I think that's on YouTube. It's on archive.org um, and another of other sites. But that's, like, way, like... We did not, the intent was not that there was going to be 12 years of this, so it's uh, at times challenging trying to correlate everything, and white people have disrupted uh, our archives so consistently over the years that we've been on uh, that it's just been a constant labor of having to re-upload archives. The Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly uh, program, I've had to upload that so many times over. Uh, I believe that is currently uh, in our current feed uh, it would be on iTunes, but I think they only show like the most, the 300 most current uh, programs. But uh, if you're looking for current content, iTunes, Podbean, Blueberry, Black Talk Radio Network, uh, those Stitcher, those are at least five uh, for current 
for older cows episodes, uh, archive.org. Uh, I can post the exact link on Facebook and Twitter to have it. That's where Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly, that program will be. Some of the uh, older content is also in some of the other feeds that I listed as well. But just over the years, white people disrupting and all of the rest of it, white people have done a really good job at <laughs> making it difficult to have all of our content together. Incidentally, we do have now about 2,000 programs, so just the volume of material is also uh, another component of making it difficult to get it all collated and together in one spot. But newer content, Black Talk Radio, Blue, uh, Podbean, Blueberry, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts uh, for newer content, and then archive.org. YouTube even also is a good resource for, well, when I say older, like 2009, 2010, older content. Okay. Thank you. For sure, for sure. That was supposed to be one of our projects and we could get everything all collated and make it easy for people to go back over the archives and access content for the past 12 years. But woof, with the whole Rona situation and all of that was I had a list that showed people that was one of my list of things to work on. Like 2020 destroyed all of that effort and whew, have not been able to get back on track since. But hopefully we'll be able to get that done too. make it easy to make it easy for listeners to access the content that we have produced for a dozen years. That's it. Uh, I'll post the link again for Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly. He had lots of great info there, beauticians and all again. And why sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. They do a lot of using drugs to get non-white people off the track of counter racism. Brain computer is important. Respect it. In addition to being sober, uh, obviously, if you're in the U.S., especially like hunker down, it is super dangerous right now. I'd be very observant uh, if you are out and about in public, just what's happening around you, what's going on. Very alert. Uh, if somebody is being hostile and loud, this is not the time for verbal confrontations with strangers. You should be thinking this person could be armed. I'm out of here. This person, in fact, could have a whole group with them armed, ready to kill. If you didn't leave your residence prepared to die and or murder, exit. Not the time to be hanging out, playing around. Is so many armed, stressed, anxious, rowdy folks, particularly in the U.S. Uh, just be very alert and mindful when you leave the house. Uh, if you must go out, uh, we're sober. If you're driver or passenger, you're buckled. If you're driving, you're not on the cell phone just trying to do the small things that we can to one preserve the attention that we have so that we can be alert and then to minimize contact with the Derek Chauvin's Mark Furman's of the known universe. That's it creator. We ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Ah.